too fucked up and he fell and busted his lip. He had to go to the aid station to get stitches real fast. It was an inauspicious start to Operation Honor Bright, yet we rode out north by northwest. Our work was tiring and we wouldn't have much luck because Haji knew we were coming, because when you were mech, you didn't ever surprise anyone. It was a lot of women and children, some old men. You didn't see men of fighting age when you were out there. Either they were with the IAs or they were with the IPs or they were dead or they were detained or they were hiding or they were somewhere else. A rifle squad walked the road that ran along the riverbank. Shooting broke out in a clutch of houses on the other side of the river. Grenades going off, machine gun fire. It sounded like something real. The squad took cover on the back side of the road, except Borges and I. We slid down the shooting side and scanned the far bank of the river. This was my first day carrying a rifle. I'd traded my pistol to Yuri for it. Now I was looking to see if there was anybody I could shoot bullets into. Not a minute, not thirty seconds. The shooting stopped. And maybe it was real, but it was nothing to do with us. Staff Sergeant North and Staff Sergeant Castro were laughing on the far side of the road. They'd done this kind of thing before. North, who had just got his E-6, had been with the battalion in 03, and he had shot a haji off a rooftop. Castro, a former Marine, had been at Fallujah in 04. He said, come on, Doc, don't be fucked up. You're supposed to go away from the shooting. I said something. I was still a retard. Okay, he said, whatever you say, next time the other direction. Even Borges was laughing at me, and he'd done the exact shit I'd done. Really, I'd just been following his lead, and he had about wiped out sliding down the berm, but nobody would bust his balls over it. Borges was on his second tour, so if he wanted to fuck up and get himself shot, that was on him. We went back the way we came, and we stopped at an empty house facing the river. Halfway across the river was an island that was overgrown with date palms. North cocked a high-explosive round in his 203 and sent it into the island, where it worked about as you'd expect. That was just North acting out. He was disappointed because we were on the wrong side of the river, and he knew he wasn't going to get to kill anybody. Lieutenant Hayward had been fired. It was because he kept having us all put in bullshit paperwork. He'd made a bunch of sworn statements for all of us who had been on QRF-1 that Christmas. The sworn statement said we had all been within 50 meters of the battalion talk when the rocket hit it. This wasn't true. We had been much farther away than that, but had we been within 50 meters, we would get credit for having been in combat and Hayward would get a combat infantryman badge, which was good for promotion points, if for nothing else. So 50 meters it was, and he had us all sign these statements he had written up on our behalf, and he turned them in. When they got kicked back, he printed out a new batch and had us sign again. Then he turned the new batch in and got himself fired that way. Even when the people were shooting, my mind was somewhere else. I was out of sorts. I'd asked Emily if she'd got the orchid I'd sent her, and she'd said, yeah, she'd got it. Well, what did she think? She thought it was dumb. Why had she thought it was dumb? What did the card mean? It was the bouquet of parentheses from Seymour in introduction. Well, what the fuck was that? She didn't know. I'd given her that book around the time we met, I thought she'd like the story with the quiet old man who smoked and drank liquor. She'd said she liked the book. Had she even read the book? 
I told some of this to Yuri. I said, she's fucking hiding something, isn't she? He said I was a fucking idiot. Did that mean he thought she was hiding something? I said, Yuri, just tell me yes or no. Is she hiding something? Chapter 28 It was 2200 and Delta Company had just hit their upteenth IED in eight hours. The battalion had been taking casualties. We were sent on a raid. The ramp dropped and we weren't far from some houses. Our company first sergeant, first sergeant Hightower had come along. He was a stout man built like a coconut. He seemed excited. The door on the first house was made of sheet metal like all the doors were, but this one had bullet holes all over it, and the light inside the house glared through the holes. We lifted our NVGs and we were hesitating. Then Staff Sergeant Hueso Santiago came running up like the movies and kicked the door in and we went in after him. Inside were the ubiquitous women and children, the ubiquitous old man. They were all along the wall. The television was on. We searched the room. The wooden chest on the table in the corner was packed full of clothes, and there was an AK-47 wrapped up in a shirt with two loaded magazines. This wasn't a big deal because they were allowed to have these things, but the first sergeant either didn't know or had momentarily forgotten because he took the AK-47 away and he was talking to it when he went outside saying, Yes, I've got you, I've got you, yes. This was the first sergeant's first rodeo. There was ground to cover before the next house, but we didn't make a big deal out of it, and we got there. We stacked up and rushed through the front door and came into a room that had another four doors off it. Everything was in night vision. Nobody was talking. We were making it up as we went. We each took a door. I was in front of a door, and I had never kicked a door in before, and I was worried I'd kick it ineffectually. The sheet metal gave way easy enough, and the bolt came out of the slot. It was a small room. There were no hajis, only some goats, a mama goat and her baby goats. Some shit was happening behind me, and I turned around and saw a naked Haji was caught up wrestling with Private Miller. Miller had been in Echo Company all of three days. He was just out of basic, now this shit. He brought a heel down on the inside of the Haji's knee, and he dragged it down the length of the tibia. Even before Hueso Santiago could jump in, it was over. The naked Haji was down on the floor. He was young, fighting age. There was a young woman, too. She was backed up against the far wall of the bedroom. She had wrapped herself in a sheet. An AK-47 leaned against the wall in the corner across from the door. Miller said, He was going for the AK, sir. He said it like he thought he was in trouble. Hueso Santiago said, You did right. Somebody brought an old man and his old wife out from one of the rooms. The old man and his wife saw what had happened, and the old man got the yelling, and the old lady started to shake. The first sergeant wanted to question the old man, but the old man wasn't having it. He said something to the interpreter, sounded like, what the fuck is this? And the first sergeant pointed at me and told the old man I was a doctor. Somebody asked if the leg was broken. I moved the leg, I felt it, I listened for a crepitation. I got the impression that I didn't know what I was doing. I said, it might be fractured. Moving the leg caused him pain. He was still naked. I said, can somebody please get a fucking man dress or something for this guy? I told the interpreter to say the haji needed to go to a hospital. The interpreter was wearing a ski mask. I gave the haji some 800 milligram ibuprofens. Miller had wrapped a man dress around his waist. 
I put a few more ibuprofens in a little Ziploc bag for him, and I laid the little Ziploc bag beside him on the floor because his hands were zip-cuffed behind his back. The Hajis were sitting on the floor covered by rifles and looking sullen. The Joes smoked cigarettes, and the first sergeant did his questions. The radio said, don't detain anybody. It was time to go. No harm, no foul, said the first sergeant. We left and moved on to the next house. The sun had come up. Some of us got to meet the new platoon leader for 3rd Platoon, 2nd Lieutenant Evans. He was sort of a tall, goofy-looking motherfucker, like uh, young Tom Hanks, but he seemed reasonable enough. We were at the assembly area in the desert outside of town. I was in the troop compartment of the Bradley that was now Evans's, and I was listening to the battalion net. Miller was there, too, in the back of the track. The radio said one of our guys had got fucked up somewhere. The battle roster number went out. Hotel, hotel, Charlie Echo, Yankee, 3366. I said, that's Yuri. Miller didn't know who Yuri was. We cleared house all day. Borges shot a dog in the face. Seven, six, two. Nothing else happened. Chapter 29 the last day of Operation Honor Bright, some of us were sent to a schoolhouse to set up a clinic for the Hajis. A lot of Hajis were lined up outside. One old Haji had deep lacerations on his wrists. He said the lacerations were from when he'd been zip-cuffed a few days back. I washed the lacerations out with saline and dressed them with bacitracin and gauze. One of his hands was swollen and shaking real bad. To me, it looked like it was serious, but I didn't know, and I didn't know what to tell him either, so I went to ask the two senior medics, two sergeants from HHC, who had come along to help with the clinic. They were asleep in a five-ton outside. I woke them up and told them about the old Haji and asked them what they thought was wrong with them. The senior medic said it was cellulitis. I said, I don't have antibiotics or anything, do you? He said, no. What can I do for this guy? Nothing. What should I tell him? Tell him to eat shit and die. I went back and I told the interpreter to tell the old Haji to go to a hospital and try to get some antibiotics from a doctor because I didn't have any medicine. I didn't have anything. I didn't know anything. A mother had brought her kid in. The kid was about seven. He had a deep laceration on his right hand. There was nothing I could do but bandage it. A photographer from the Army Times took our picture when I was putting the bandage on. This was the kind of shit that happened. The infantry were pulling security outside. About a dozen kids were hanging around, and Borges was teaching them the shocker. He arranged his fingers just so. He said, two in the pink, one in the stink. They went, yeah, 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 yeah. We were on the road heading back to the FOB. I was in the troop compartment of Evans's track, and I realized I was by myself for the first time since I'd left Fort Hood. So I jerked off into some MRE toilet paper. Then I pissed into a liter water bottle. I filled it up pretty far, and I put the jizz in the bottle with the piss and threw everything out the hatch on the ramp. I went to sleep. I didn't dream. When I woke up, we were stopped. I banged on the turret door. It opened, and I asked the gunner why we were stopped. The gunner said we'd run over an IED, but it hadn't gone off. The track had crushed the battery so the bomb couldn't detonate. EOD was taking it apart with a robot. Three one five fives, he said.
Jesus. Chapter 30 PFC Checo and Specialist Greenwald were in the aid station overnight. Blackhawks would take them to Baghdad in the morning. From Baghdad, they'd go to Kuwait, Kuwait to Germany, Germany to the States. They'd get their coffin somewhere on the way. There was a battalion formation on the LZ. It was only our second time taking dead, and the lifers were still making a big deal out of it, like somehow you were the asshole, and you went along with it. Checo and Greenwald. They were just names to me. I hadn't ever talked to them. If I'd ever seen them before, I didn't know. It was IPs who'd done it. It had happened on Route Carantan. The EFP went through the up armor, no problem. It smashed Checo's head. It cut Greenwald at the waist. He spilled on the gunner's platform. The Blackhawks didn't spend two minutes on the LZ. Some medics carried the body bags out. When the medics were clear, the Blackhawks went on their way. The battalion sergeant major told us to fall out, then two other helicopters were coming in. They showed up a ways off against the gray sky, and we stayed around to see what they were about. The second pair of Blackhawks landed, and all these beautiful women came out of them. And the women waved and bounced, and they had white teeth. And they didn't know or whatever, but still, it was goddamn awful. The Denver Mustangs cheerleaders were on display at the DFAC for an hour, talking to the soldiers, taking pictures with the soldiers, beautiful women with skin like expensive cream, and they were there, albeit not for long. I didn't go see them. It wasn't like they were going to fuck you, and that was what this was all about. You were supposed to want to fuck them, and they were supposed to not fuck you. If you were a ball player, they'd fuck you. If you were a ball player, they'd let you do everything to them. They'd let you disgrace them, but you weren't a ball player. We never did anything to the IPs, but some of us from Echo were put out on a cordon on the edge of the big Shia city one night about a week after Checo and Greenwald. We were supposed to block anyone from going in or out while special forces raided a Mahdi compound. A voice came over the net, sounded like death metal, said they were ready. And they killed a lot of Hajis, 40 of the poor motherfuckers. It only took a few minutes. We didn't do anything but stay in place. We didn't even hear it. I would never have known about the 40 dead Hajis if I hadn't read about them on Yahoo News the next morning. I wondered how it was they'd done it. Anyway, that's when I figured out we weren't there to do shit. We'd do for getting fucked up or killed by bombs purposes and everyday waste of your fucking time purposes but no one thought we could do the actual fighting, whatever that was. Since Yuri was done, as in all fucked up and not going to be back, First Platoon was without a medic of their own for a while, and I ended up on most of their patrols, on top of the ones I was doing with Third Platoon. So, I was on a fuckload of patrols. I was getting pretty dull already from exhaustion, but then again I was on edge all the time because I was waiting for the war to happen to me. When I went out with 1st Platoon, I usually rode in Sergeant Cave's truck. Private Rogers did the driving, Specialist Clover did the gunning. They were all tough guys, and they weren't trying to lie about shit. They said they wanted to kill somebody, really anybody if it came to it. It was that simple, but 
there wasn't anybody for them to kill, so we just rode around, and when we weren't on the move, we'd talk about what drugs we had done, what shit we had done, and what we had paid for ecstasy when we were in the world, things of that nature. Clover had got his ecstasy the cheapest, but Rogers had seen a guy get oozy to death one time, so he was the winner. I took my helmet off. Clover looked down from where he was up in the turret, and he saw the card I had taped on the front of the inside of my helmet. What's that? It's Herman Thompson, I said, the right fielder. Why do you have Herman Thompson taped inside your K-pot? My wife used to have a crush on him back when she was in grade school back in the early 90s when he played for the Braves and they were in the World Series every year. I made fun of her about it once, so she sent me this card with a letter the other day telling me to be careful because if I got killed, she was going to fuck Herman Thompson. So I have the card taped in the front of my helmet as a sort of reminder for me not to get killed. That's fucked up. I paid $110 for an orchid on Valentine's Day, and she gave it to her grandmother. Fuck. Rogers asked me if I was scared of getting hit. I said I'd prefer not to get hit if I had any say in it. Rogers said he wanted to get hit because he'd get free hunting and fishing licenses for life if he had a purple heart. You don't want a purple heart, Doc? Clover asked. Not especially. Hey, Doc, Cave said. Check this out. He was holding a hand grenade by the pin. I said, nice hand grenade. He said, I brought it back with me from Afghanistan. I knew why they were fucking with me. They thought I was an asshole. I'd been fucking up and they'd heard about it. I had gone out with QRF a few nights before when one of the battalion snipers had fallen down and said he was hurt. He'd said he was hurt so bad that he needed morphine before he could be evacuated to the aid station. I wasn't the type to deny anyone morphine, and I was going to stick him in the leg with a 15-millimeter auto-injector of it, but I was holding the fucking thing backwards, and the needle shot through my thumb and came out my thumbnail spraying morphine on the ground. A number of people had seen this happen, and there'd been another fuck-up whereby I came to appreciate how difficult it could be to start an IV on a real-life heat casualty. He got a real heat casualty, and his skin was like rubber and the needle as dull as a spoon. Evans had seen me stick the same heat casualty five times in a row without starting a line. I was sure I'd get sent back to the aid station, but I stayed where I was. All of us cherries got our combat patches on Easter. The combat patch wasn't like a CIB or a combat medic badge or something that you at least had to get shot at or whatever to get. The combat patch had nothing to do with actual combat, not even pseudo-combat. It was just a unit patch, usually a division patch, that you wore on your right sleeve so everybody would know you'd been deployed to a theater of operations and stayed a little while once. In short, it was a big fucking nothing. But all of us in the company who weren't outside the wire, who were just hanging around waiting, maybe getting some sleep or cleaning weapons or breaking track or watching porno or playing cards or huffing duster, got rounded up by the squad leaders and told to stop whatever it was we were doing and go up to the motor pool and form up as a company. They brought a boombox out. It was on the pavement hooked up to an extension cord that ran from the mechanic's shed. So we knew something was up, and then we found out we were getting our combat patches. No one gave a shit. Really, this was an inconvenience. So we bitched. Rogers said real loud that they could keep the patch if he could get to see some combat. 
First Sergeant Hightower came out and called the company to attention. Then the captain came out to say a few words. He thanked us for our hard work, said some other things, and when he'd said all he was going to say, he had the first sergeant hit the play button on the boombox and the Toby Keith song started playing. Then, right when it got to the big crescendoing part where Toby gets to talking about putting boots in people's asses, and that's what Americans do, the captain gave the order, Present Patches! It was too fucking funny, and we couldn't help laughing in his face. We didn't want to do it, just it couldn't be helped. The patches went around. It was awkward, but they went around and we got them. You could see the first sergeant was upset about us not being as solemn as he'd have liked, and after all the patches were passed out, he had us close ranks, and he right-faced us and marched us to the back of the motor pool, where he went about smoking the dog shit out of us for a while on the blacktop in the noon heat. He really gave us the works, front back goes and starmans, starmans being a simply infamous form of exercise. He had us do that shit, and what was crazier was everybody, staff sergeant and below, got caught up in it. That was about the craziest shit in the world to us Joes, since none of us had ever seen an NCO get misused like that before. I don't know if it was two weeks after that, I went out on a census patrol with 3rd Platoon. Cheetah was driving. Cheetah was a shitbag. He was big into faces of death and what was almost certainly child pornography. He would buy all the stupid gaudy knives the haji shop sold and mount them on the plywood wall above his bunk. He was driving that morning, and I thought it was stupid since he wasn't even a grunt. He was the lowest ranking of three supply pogs in the company, and he wasn't even good at that because he kept getting himself Article 15 for being a moody, knife-pulling shitbag. Yet, he was leaving the wire with us, and he was even driving. It was something to do with him having assured the first sergeant that he wouldn't be such a shitbag all the time if he could only leave the wire a little and feel like part of the team. Lieutenant Evans was riding shotgun. Perez was in the turret. I was in the back. Neither Cheetah nor Perez was an American citizen. Cheetah was from Somalia, Perez was from Mexico somewhere. I wondered about the implications of this. I think they both liked America more than I did. What was my problem? We were the lead Humvee of three that had left on the patrol. It was mid-morning. The three Humvees drove north on Route Polk and took a right turn off the highway and onto a trail that hooked around a main irrigation canal. The trail ended some 150 meters short of some houses where the day's sentencing was to be done. I told Evans he shouldn't try to drive over the ground between the trail and the houses. I said we ought to dismount and walk the rest of the way. Why can't we drive? The trucks can't drive through that shit, sir. They're too heavy. They'll get stuck. Looks fine to me. It only looks fine because it's dry on top from the fucking sun, but it's all shit under the surface, trust me. I've seen shit identical to this before. Lieutenant Hayward got four vehicles stuck trying to drive through identical shit as this. You don't remember Lieutenant Hayward because he got fired before you came to the company, sir. I don't know, he said. I think we'll try anyway. The truck didn't go twenty meters, and it was stuck. Evans told Cheetah to back out, but the truck couldn't go back either, and it didn't help that Cheetah didn't know what he was doing. So then Evans wanted North's truck to come up and pull us out, and I said, You don't want to do that, sir. That's what Lieutenant Hayward did, and it didn't work. You only make things harder for QRF when they get here. You need a Bradley with a tow cable. Hush. 
So after the three trucks were stuck, Evans radioed the fob for QRF to come and fetch us out. It was either that or he could defect to the Hajis. QRF arrived. They were from 1st Platoon, a Bradley in front of three Humvees. The Bradley came tearing up the fucking trail and went directly into the shit and buried its track up to the skirt. So ended the rescue. It looked like we were going to be stuck a while, like all day, and I took a turn up in the turret. A haji was watching us from where the houses were. I watched him watching us. I thought it must have been that he was amused by our situation, so I let it go. He got bored after a while, and he went away. Sergeant Caves was there. He had come up with QRF, and he was bullshitting with North. They were talking about what a clusterfuck that they had turned into. They talked about where they would go hunting when they got back to the States. The battalion radioed and told QRF to return to the FOB and come back to us with a wrecker. The Bradley would have to stay put. The order went around. QRF headed back and caves departed with them. We heard the dull thump. We saw the smoke streaming into the sky. I asked Evans if QRF had a medic with them. He got on the radio. Echo 1-6, this is Echo 3-6 actual. A voice came back on the net. It was Lieutenant Nathan. Uh, this, uh, isn't a good time. QRF wasn't far away. Evans sent north with some dismounts and some fire extinguishers to try and get there and help out. The quickest way back to the hardball was across the irrigation canal. It was deep enough and wide enough that we had to get in it and swim across. We were loaded down with fire extinguishers, guns, body armor, assault packs, all that shit, and we were having a hard time not drowning in the motherfucker. Perez almost drowned, and Cheetah had to pull him out. I was the first one to get across. I crawled up the bank and got to my feet just as a white bongo truck was coming down the road, going the way we were going. I pulled my rifle up and aimed where I guessed the driver's face was. I took my left hand off the grip and signaled him to stop. If he didn't stop, I was going to try and murder him. But he stopped. I moved up to the driver door. It was two Hodges in the cab. I saw North and the interpreter coming up on my right. North told the interpreter to tell the Hodges to take us down the road. We piled in the truck bed. We stopped about a hundred meters short of the QRF element and ran the last part of the way. On the other side of the rear Humvee, there was a hole in the road, and farther on, a Humvee was burning. A charred seat was lying on its side on the road. Specialist Farley was standing there looking. I said, Where are the casualties? He said, They're all dead, you fucking asshole. I looked again at the body of the gunner. He was burned away. Scraps of IBAs clung to his torso, legs folded up femurs and tibias and fibulas with black tissue, arms melted, body eviscerated and lying on his guts, face gone, head a skull. Smell is something you already know. It's coated in your blood. Smoke gets into every pore and into every gland, your mouth full of it, to where you may as well be eating it. Soldiers are getting water out of the paddies on either side of the road with a Gatorade cooler, ammo cans, whatever else, and making a chain from the water to the fire. The fire extinguishers are used up quick. First platoon's new medic, a lifer named Jackson, is yelling about how somebody needs to pull security. He's the only one on the road who gives a fuck about security, and he's right, but nobody gives a fuck. I've got my helmet off and I'm going back and forth with it from the water to the fire, carrying water in it. 
and it's not registering with me that this is idiotic, but we are all obsessed with getting the fire out even though everybody's fucking dead and there's really no reason to hurry. The fire's out and the three dead make four, counting the one on the road. Caves, Rogers, Clover, and I don't know who the fourth is. Half the battalion is lined up on the road. I go down the road and wave at the gunner of the first track I see. I hold four fingers up to the gunner and I mouth the words body bags. I go to turn back, but I look twice because Clover's walking up the road. I say, I thought you were dead. I say I thought he had been in the truck. He says he was supposed to go on mid-tour leave this morning. Says the flight out got canceled, though. I say, fuck. I thought he was a ghost just now, and fuck, sorry about those guys, because I know they were tight, and who was the gunner? He says, Easton. I say, fuck. What about the fourth guy? He says, DeWitt. The four body bags come. The captain is there by the truck now. DeWitt is curled on the platform under the turret. The face is gone so you couldn't know who it was unless you knew because Clover just told you. A burned up hot white skull, empty sockets, teeth clenched like they'll shatter. The captain gives a look to say, pick up the body. I take it by the top half and he takes it by the legs. Muscle tissue is slick black, hot enough that the latex gloves break on contact. Hands burning too much, I've got to set him down. Set the body down, set him down, pick it up again. Somebody helps, supports the body under the ass burnt off. The penis and testicles, his dick and his balls are burned off. And it's a tab of flesh there, not a centimeter of it. We shuffle back some steps to the body bag laid open on the ground, lay him in the bag, close the bag, go to the water, throw away what's left of the latex gloves, Back on the road, some guys are picking up Easton. They stop, and one's saying, Hold up, hold up, hold up. His guts are coming out. They have Easton on his back now. The part of his face that was lying against the pavement hasn't burned away. It's a circle of flesh. The right eye hasn't burned away. You can tell just from the eye that it's Easton, blue eye. And this kid looking down, crying, says, That's Easton. That's my friend. Caves and Rogers are in the front seats, Caves leaning forward against the dash. It's easy getting him out because his IBA is mostly intact and it keeps his guts where they are. The hand grenade is still attached to his IBA. I don't remember that it's there. I send him back to the aid station with the hand grenade strapped to him. They have to call EOD to deal with it. Rogers is in the driver's seat and I know because he was Caves' driver. Otherwise, I wouldn't know. Caves and Rogers have no faces, all faces burned off, no faces anymore. Rogers is in the body bag. A shook-up sergeant named Edwards tells me he thinks there's some more of them still in the truck. He points to a string of fat running along what's left of the driver's seat, the frame of it. I don't know what to do. I skim it off with my fingers, roll a ball of it, and throw it in the water. Then I walk down the road, gory as fuck not making sense. Chapter 31 I went home on mid-tour leave in May. Two weeks, and I got disappointed. Emily was only around a little while. She said she couldn't hang around too long in Cleveland because she had got a job in Washington State somewhere, and it couldn't wait. 
something to do with nature. Whatever it was, she couldn't miss it. There were other girls who'd have fucked me, and they were beautiful. I should have fucked them all, but I didn't because I was supposed to be married even though I wasn't supposed to tell anyone. I went back. Chapter 32 Some nights we walked what seemed like forever. Some nights we didn't walk far. Some nights somebody shot a dog out of boredom. This night there were five of us, a fire team. North was leading it. We took the road as far as OP-1, the first observation post, then veered off to the right and down into the fields between Route Martha and Route Polk. We settled into an empty field from which we could see neither of the two roads. North wasn't interested in the roads. He thought he could catch a haji out in the fields. The curfew was sundown and our ROE was to shoot anybody we caught out after dark. Even with the sandflies, it was easy to fall asleep. Night vision was tedious and all this was nothing. We sat still for some hours. Nobody talked, nobody moved. The bugs ate us. North got up to leave and we followed him. We filed to the edge of the field and brushed through the tall grass and into a dooryard. There was a haji on a bed outside in front of the house. I heard him breathe and stumble when he took off running. North radioed the company talk and the talk said go ahead and shoot him. The haji had gone left and we spread out on a line to turn him up. I was scanning a ditch hoping I wouldn't see him as I didn't feel especially ready to shoot him right that minute. It was Sullivan who spotted him, and he called out as much. The haji was up and running thirty meters in front. Private Dallas, a brand new cherry we had with us, went chasing after him. Dallas crossed into my line of fire and I didn't shoot, but the rest of the fire team opened up. Never mind the cherry. We came up with our rifles shouldered and the haji was laid out on his back. He had blood on his white tank top. He wasn't wearing shoes. He was good-looking, young, twenty-five at most. He was quiet, eyes staring, thinking probably he was going to die. I was supposed to work on him. The entry wound might have been over his stomach, I didn't know. There was a splash of blood from the wound, but there was no blood coming out of it now, just fat pushed out of it. I balled up some gauze and pressed it into the wound. I covered the gauze with a Ziploc bag, taped the plastic down on three sides, and asked Sullivan to keep pressure on the dressing for me. I was looking for an exit wound. There wasn't any exit wound I could see on the upper body, and since 556 five, rounds tumble, I could only guess where the bullet might have gone once it was in. I cut the Haji's sweatpants off with trauma shears. The Haji had a big dick, and he was shaved. That got a laugh out of Sergeant Bautista but there was no exit wound. I should have packed the haji full of gauze. I should have kept packing the wound till I couldn't pack it anymore, till it was packed tight. But I didn't. I should have had him lie on the side he was wounded on, but I forgot. I said I was going to prop the haji's feet up on my helmet because the haji could go into shock if his feet weren't propped up like that. And even though this was true, I was only saying it just to say things because there was no exit wound and I didn't know what to do. The haji's eyes rolled up in his head and then came back, focused again, rolled up again. I was trying to start a line, but his veins were flat. I said I was going to give him morphine to keep him from going into shock. North said, do what you have to do, Doc. You don't have to tell us. 
I gave the haji morphine so I could look like I was doing something right. I stuck him on his right thigh and went back to working on a line. His arm was thin. I couldn't get a flash. Then I got a flash, but he moved, and I lost it. I said, keep still, you fuck. I'm trying to help you. North said, be quiet, Doc. North had called for a medevac. That was one of the first things you were supposed to do. I told him to call it in as an urgent surgical, but the medevac wasn't coming. The haji started choking on vomit. The vomit was white and viscous, and I was clearing it out of his throat with my fingertips when he lost consciousness. He had no breath, no pulse. I put the bag ventilator together with the CPR mask. I had Bautista do the chest compressions, and I did the ventilations. A little of that, and the haji came back, and he was breathing on his own again. And then he croaked. We tried CPR another few minutes. His ribs were broken from the chest compressions, and you could hear them popping. It was over with. North radioed back to the company talk and said the haji was dead and we didn't need the medevac anymore. The haji was a corpse, and we had no practical way of taking him back to the fob with us. We needed QRF to come out and get us, and they'd need to bring a body bag with them because we didn't have one of those either. The talk said QRF wouldn't come out till after the sun was up. Better they'd be able to see the road better safe than sorry. We stayed put. The sun came up, that's when I saw the other house. An old lady in black came out of the house, and she saw the naked haji laid out on the ground. North called to her, Do you know him? He indicated the naked corpse. She turned away and went back inside the house. North said, She knows him. The dismounts from QRF showed up. Castro was the first to reach us. He saw how I was looking, and he said to me, This your first dead body, Doc? I said no, like he was asking. Somebody gave me a body bag. I spread it out on the ground next to the dead naked haji and rolled him up inside it. That was when things got worse. The old lady came out of the house again and was screaming her fucking head off. She tried to get to the body bag, but a couple soldiers pulled her back, and she fell on her knees and screamed some more and kept screaming. She started taking handfuls of dirt and pouring them over her head. She hit her face against the ground, then she rose back up on her knees and went through the whole thing again. I closed the body bag. A young woman, real pregnant, had come out of the house, and she started doing the same shit the old lady was doing. And there were two boys, very young, and they were screaming. Four soldiers took the body bag, and the old lady got up and ran after them. She tried to pry the body bag away from them. I was about to cry, and maybe shoot myself, when the AK-47 let loose. Full automatic. Three long bursts stopped all that. Everybody scattered. We took cover in a ditch. The infantry were returning fire. I was on the far left of our line, scanning the left flank because I thought a haji might try and pick some of us off that way. Castro was in charge because his date of rank went back further than North's did. He was on the radio, and the radio told him to secure the dead haji. He called cease fire. They say we have to get the body. Give me four volunteers. Only three hands went up. I waited. Still no more hands. So I added a fourth, since all things considered I had to. I didn't know where the shooter was, so I emptied a magazine into a cow standing in front of the house, figuring this was the safest course of action. 
Private Dallas was to my left on his knees firing an M14. He said, Doc, I've got a Woody. I left my aid bag in the ditch and threw red smoke as far ahead as I could get it. When the smoke popped, we went. It was 20 meters to the body bag. The old lady was there. She was black cloth on the ground. Running there wasn't bad. Coming back the other way was more interesting. I was waiting on an AK round to come along and punch my brain out through my face. Yet I was calm. Had never been so calm. I closed my eyes and I saw Emily clear as day. No such round, and I was back in the ditch. More firing. We did the bounding overwatch routine to the next ditch back. Dallas left off shooting and ran back to where I'd got to. He had my aid bag with him. I'd fucked up real bad and left it in the first ditch. My NVGs were in the bag, and if I'd left that shit out there, I'd have never lived it down. The cherry just saved my ass. I said thanks. We fell back some more, shooting everything and nothing in particular. I shot the cow some more with a new magazine. Apaches were in the air now, and the shooter was long gone, and we were making fools of ourselves. No one was shooting back at us. On the way back to the road, there was a shit canal, so we made a bridge out of some branches and tried to drag the body bag across, but the body bag rolled off the branches and fell into the shit canal. I went in after it. It wasn't easy getting it out of the water. The body was heavy and there were holes in the bag and the water ran out of the holes and into my face like the dead Haji was pissing on me. We were nearly back to the road and I was dragging the body bag behind me with the Haji in it and I could feel his head bounce in and out of the furrows in the field and we were out in the open and my hands were full, my rifle slung and we'd just been shot at and my karma was fucked and I was jumpy. Dallas said something to me, but I didn't know what he was saying. I said, don't fucking talk to me. Pull fucking security. You weren't supposed to let your nerve show like that. When we got back to the road, somebody told me to drape the dead Haji on the front of one of the QRF tracks so no one would have to ride back to the FOB with the dead Haji in the troop compartment with him. I missed breakfast because I was up at the main gate waiting for the IPs to come and get the dead Haji. Sergeant Castro was there, too. He'd stayed to see that it went all right. I was so tired that my face hurt. I'd just done my ninth patrol in four days. The IPs arrived. Nobody said anything. I opened the body bag. We looked at the dead Haji. The IPs took him and loaded him up and left. Castro saw how I was looking, and he said... You did what you could for him, right? I said I had. Then don't beat yourself up about it. Evans was the first guy I saw when I got back to the company. He said he'd been in the company talk when we'd been out there killing the Haji. I know it's a lousy thing to say, he said, but I was hoping that the guy wouldn't make it. Who knows what kind of stuff he would have said. Yeah, I said, that's understandable. The people up there are making a fuss, he said. They say we left another body up there. Who? We don't know, but we're going back up there tonight. I'm taking two squads up there myself. We're expecting retaliation. Will you be ready to go? I said, yeah, no problem. And we were back out that night, and nothing happened. 
It was Sullivan who told me how he'd seen the old lady get hit with our fire that morning. And I knew it was true because Sullivan didn't lie, and he wouldn't have said it if he wasn't sure. Chapter 33 The battle roster number was EAJ-0888, and we were trying to think of who that was. We knew it was a guy from 1st Platoon because Staff Sergeant White had called it in. We knew it wasn't special as Jackson, 1st Platoon's medic, since line medics were attached to Bravo from HHC, and if the dead guy were Jackson, the battle roster number would have started with HHC and not E. The first initial being A wasn't much help, as we weren't in the habit of calling one another by our first names. It took us the better part of ten minutes to come up with a guy from 3rd Platoon whose last name started with the letter J. Private Jimenez. We cleared houses like we normally did when these things happened. It had been just a click away south of us past the bend in the road down a little past OP-1, so we didn't need to go anywhere. And with nothing to the west but a short field and the river, we turned east off the road and went about it. A blind retard was chained to a palm tree in front of the first house we came to. An old woman, presumably the retard's mother, stood near the gate of the courtyard, and some of us filed in. There were four rooms around the courtyard, so we split off to see about each one, and I kicked the door in and went into an unlit room. The room was empty except for a haji lying on the floor with his eyes closed. I said, get the fuck up, motherfucker. But he didn't move. I moved closer to him, rifle trained down on him. Get the fuck up, motherfucker. He opened one eye and looked at me, stayed unmoved, closed the eye. So I had my mind made up to kick him in the face. I didn't go around kicking Hodges in the face for no reason, and I didn't know anyone who did, but Jimenez was dead, and I was going to kick the Haji in the face. I brought the kick as hard as I could, aiming center mass, but I stopped halfway to connecting. It was all I could do to stay on the one foot and not fall on my ass. The Haji got up and stretched, and he shuffled out of the room. I can't remember when it had occurred to me that maybe he was also retarded. I unfucked myself and went outside to see where the haji had gone. He was heading off into the fields, looking up into the sun. Nobody touched him. Jimenez was a cherry. He was one of the replacements who had come to the company after first platoon lost the four guys killed out on Route Polk. He hadn't been around two months, and he was dead. It was unlucky. Sometimes the dead guy was really an asshole, or you could make the case that he was. Not so with Jimenez. For all intents and purposes, Jimenez was a saint. That's why he stuck out like a sore thumb in an infantry company. The thing is, your average infantryman is no worse than your garden-variety son of a bitch, but he talks in dick jokes and aspires to murder, and it doesn't come off as a very saintly mode of being. Yet Jimenez was a saint. It wasn't like he was soft or anything like that. He was a tough kid. He'd only just turned 19, but he was strong with a deep chest and the kind of unbreakable wrists one gets from working with his hands. And he'd work. The sergeants liked him for that. But he was so goddamn nice that he drove people crazy sometimes. Like he'd play poker with the poker players and he'd play bad hands. Delta Queen 4 offsuited, he was liable to call two pre-flop raises and hit a boat on the river. 
and when people got mad at him for playing garbage, he'd apologize and try to give them back their chips, but it didn't work like that. The last time I saw Jimenez was about eight hours before Haji killed him. He'd been boxing Staff Sergeant Castro in the weight room, sparring, and Castro had popped him on the nose pretty good, so his nose was bleeding, not broken or anything, just bleeding. And Castro told him to go see a medic, and Jimenez did what he was told, and when he came around looking for a medic, I gave him a hard time. I said, what the fuck are you coming to me about a bloody fucking nose for, Cherry? And he didn't say anything, he just smiled, all awkward, like he was embarrassed for me. I said, come on, Cherry, I'm tired. Please don't come to me with dumb shit, okay? I'm really fucking tired, you know? He went out with a fire team in the morning. They set up a TCP on Route Martha. They'd gone out when it was still dark, and they hadn't had a good look at the spot where they were set up, and they didn't know Haji had laid a 155 round underneath the road there. The road was just a paved berm, and it was easy to mine, and the Hodge was watching them. He saw Jimenez stand on the spot he had mined. I heard Coljo talk about it. It was later that same day. He was telling some Joes what it had been like. He said, it looked like something out of a horror movie. The 155 round took off both Jimenez's legs and severed one of his arms almost completely. But he was still awake and he knew what was happening. He was screaming. The fire team traded shots with two fucking murderers. But the murderers got away north through a palm grove. The fire team couldn't go after them because they couldn't leave Jimenez there by himself. Chapter 34 A lot of internet pornography went around the fob. The biggest file had been passed down to us from the Mississippi Rifles, who had inherited it from the Marines, who had inherited it from the 10th Mountain Division, who had inherited it from whomever. We watched the fuck van a lot. The fuck van was the last thing we needed to see. The way the fuck van worked was the fuck van would cruise around looking for young women to video getting fucked in the fuck van. Several bros would ride in the fuck van and they'd be on the lookout. Then one bro would go, look, and he'd point out a young woman walking down the side of the road and maybe she'd have a bag of groceries or something like that. It would always begin innocently enough. The bros would call out to the young woman and offer her a ride. At first, she'd be reluctant to accept the ride because the fuck van was a panel van, and she associated this type of van with rapists and laborers, and these were strange bros. But the bros would overcome her misgivings with their bro charms, and she'd inevitably accept the ride. Once they got her in the fuck van, the bros would make fun of the young woman and call her stupid so as to make her feel insecure about herself, and they'd ask her questions that got rather personal, and after a few minutes, they'd ask her to take off her shirt. She would decline at first, so the bros would offer her cash. Once the cash came out, things changed. Before long, the woman would be completely naked, sucking off several bros at once, and they'd have her do things like, say, the ABCs with a dick in her mouth, and she'd do it. When the bros were done with her, they'd take turns coming on her face. Then she'd get dressed, and the fuck van would pull over at a random spot where the bros would kick the young woman out of the fuck van and throw her groceries at her and call her a whore and drive away. One day, the fuck van happened to be playing on a laptop on the card table, and Sergeant Thorpe happened to see it. 
a young blonde woman with a British accent was getting double penetrated by some bros in the fuck van. Thorpe noticed something, and he stopped the video. She's a slut, he said. Look, the slut's wearing a wedding ring. He dragged the timer back to a point in the video where there was a close-up of the young woman fingering her clitoris, and you could definitely see she was wearing a wedding ring. A married woman in the fuck van. Thorpe couldn't watch the fuck van after that. It was too bad for Thorpe. He was still all fucked up from what his old lady had done to him. It was sad as fuck, and he wasn't the only one. A lot of us were getting fucked around. The fuck van was bad for morale. Guys argued about whether the fuck van was actually real, but it had to be real because it was there and we could see it. And we knew then that life was just a murderous fuck game and that we had been dumb enough to fall for some bullshit. Third platoon was on QRF-1 the night that Haji took some paratroopers alive at an OP north of Checkpoint 9. It was a straight shot up Route Martha to get there, and we could have made it fast, but we were held up on account of a lot of last-minute additions to the patrol roster. Then the Blue Force Tracker went down. That was our GPS, and we weren't allowed to leave the FOB without it working, so we were stuck waiting with the truck staged at the north gate. Specialist Jeffries said, We're sitting ducks out here. Jeffries was a little fucker, and he didn't know how ate the fuck up he was. He thought he was all right because he'd been in the 82nd Airborne once, but nobody gave a rat's ass that he'd been in the 82nd Airborne. The only reason Jeffries was on the roster that night was the captain's usual driver was on mid-tour leave, and they'd had to have somebody fill in, and Jeffries was worried about light discipline. I've got to say something, he said. I've got to. He went to tell whomever that we were sitting ducks. When he came back, he was looking chastised. I can't believe this, he said. Freaking amateurs. It was more than an hour before we were on our way. We went up north past checkpoint nine. The truck stopped to let us out. Hueso Santiago led a squad into some fields west of the road. North led a fire team heading northeast. And Lieutenant Evans, First Sergeant Hightower, Castro, and I went off due east of the road. There was no shortage of aircraft above us. Through one came word of a target house. We were going to clear it. Evans said, This is the target house. The first sergeant asked if he was sure. They say we're right on top of it. The target house is 25 meters away. No lights on. Without any words, it was determined that the lieutenant and the first sergeant would cover Castro and me from the tall grass on the edge of the yard while we kicked the door in and cleared the house. So Castro and I crossed the yard and stopped next to the door. I kicked the door in. I was pretty sure I was about to die, but it would have been lame if I'd pussied out, so I flicked the safety switch to burst and I didn't think about it. We went in. I went left and Castro went right. There was nobody in the entire room. I scanned a smaller room from the doorway and again there was nobody. There was a stairway in the back corner of the room and we saw it and we didn't hesitate before we were going up because we didn't give a fuck about dying and really we had figured out by then that this target house was bullshit. Back at the road, Green was giving Jeffries a hard time. He said he'd personally shoot Jeffries if Jeffries ever touched a radio again. He said he was serious. I asked Sullivan what it was about. He said, Numbnuts over there. Green lighted an airstrike on Hueso's squad. Almost got them all killed. No shit, 
Yeah, Huesos people don't have IR beacons on their shit because they're all from fucking Bradley crews. The aircraft thought they were the Hodge. But that's what happens when you send Bradley crews out as dismounts, eight the fuck up. The fucking aircraft radioed the captain to see if all our people were accounted for, but the captain wasn't in his truck, and numbnuts, fucking Jeffries, radioed back on his own and said all our people were accounted for. Meanwhile, Hueso's out there, and this big IR beam comes down on him like some shit out of a fucking UFO, and he radios on the company net and says, um, I think I'm about to get lit up by one of our aircraft. So Green figures out what's going on, and he runs over to the captain's truck, yelling like he's fucking going crazy, and he pulls numbnuts off the radio calls the fucking shit off, thank God. Fuck. We regrouped at the road. The target house had been cleared, so there was nothing left to do but search everywhere else till somebody found the missing paratroopers. Everywhere else was connected by paths through tall grass and palm groves and shit canals. The paths were very narrow and turned a lot, and you couldn't tell what was around the bends. We cleared some houses, most of them were empty. We found nothing. A group of soldiers moved on a house about 50 meters north of us. We had run out of houses where we were, so we thought to move up that way and see what was going on there. North and I went ahead while the first sergeant got the rest of our people together. By the time North and I reached the house, it had been cleared. Some hajis were sitting on the living room floor. There were three young children, a boy and two girls, and a mother and a father. The television was on. Four paratroopers and an interpreter were in the room as well. And one of the paratroopers, a sergeant, an E-5, took an asp off his gear and flicked it out. He took the boy from off the floor and shoved him into a wall. He grabbed the boy by the back of his neck and he said, I'm looking for some friends of mine. He jabbed the boy three times hard in the ribs with the butt end of the asp. The boy's father, the mother, the two girls, not one of them so much as blinked. He said, is there anything you want to tell me? He hit the boy some more. The boy took it quietly. His legs buckled, but the sergeant had him by the neck. No one said anything. The sergeant hit the kid some more. He had his mind made up to hit the kid for a while, so he did. And it was meaningless because we were looking for some dead men. They died and gone to the Internet. That's where people go when they die these days, at least when they die like that. I walked out of the house and I ran into Lieutenant Evans. I said, you probably shouldn't go in there, sir. He said, why not? I said, one of the airborne guys is beating up a kid. He said, oh. Chapter 35 After we had been in Iraq a while, it became apparent that they weren't about to piss test any of us. Something decent they'd done for us, I imagine. So, you could get high. But there was the question then of how. You could get narcotics from the right interpreter, but then you might have a stroke or fall out of a fucking guard tower or something else infamous. And you didn't want that, so what you did was you'd have it sent in from the world. The mail people x-rayed the mail and they had drug dogs for it too. But it wasn't that serious. You could get a little weed in, you could get a little powder. Prescription drugs were wide open, within reason. If you could get somebody to mail it, and if they showed a little restraint, you were good. Of course, it wasn't every day you got such a care package, so what ended up happening was you'd form little cliques, three or four like-minded individuals getting weed or pills or liquor or whatever sent in from the world. 
Liquor usually came in mouthwash bottles. Little bits of weed came in all kinds of ways. I'd left some money with Roy when I was home. Roy sent me an ounce baked into some brownies. He'd had his girlfriend do the baking. It was some care package. These brownies, plus Roy had thrown in a Johnny Cash poster, three packs of Winston Reds, and some Perk Tens in an Advil bottle for good measure. Real magnanimous of him. I said, Roy, you've done good. He'd sent his girl to mail it at the post office, and she did, and then he found out she'd put his return address on the box, so he sent her to the post office to get the package back, and she did. Then she took it back to Roy, and Roy changed the address on it, and they sent it again, fake address this time. That was Roy. We'd about got lynched out at the car bombing that afternoon. The car bomb did what car bombs do, and four were dead in the market. It could have been more, but the sheep took most of the blast. So you had flesh and blood and wool on the pavement. You had blood stains on the pavement, little lakes of blood. And all the hajis were out there like a macabre sort of block party. A teenage haji was punching a kid in the face. He shoved the kid down into the shins-deep garbage in the gutter. The kid came up with a splintered two-by-four, swinging it around and raving in boy-pitched Arabic that sounded like tears in his eyes. But then the teen haji got the two-by-four away from him and beat him with it some. And the old haji stood around and didn't do anything, lest they should be mistaken for men unaccustomed to brutality. What was left of the car was there. Our patrol had been nearby when the battalion ordered us to keep the IPs from getting rid of what was left of the car before QRF could bring EOD out to look it over for indications of who had put the bomb together. So we were waiting for QRF, and more and more hajis closed in around us. There were only two dismounts in the street. I counted as one, and the other guy, Lessing, was thirty meters up from where I was. The gunners and the drivers couldn't leave the trucks. The vehicle commanders could have left the trucks, but they didn't even though they should have. I was trying to watch all the rooftops and all the dark window spaces and all the corners all at once, looking for the haji who meant to shoot me in the face. It was early in the afternoon and the sky was clear so the sun had everything blinding. And all these hajis were getting out of control and I kind of wanted to just say fuck it and let them run riot all over the place so as to better illustrate for the VCs why some more help on the ground wouldn't have been amiss. So Lessing and I were pissed off when we came back in, but then there was a package from Roy and there were these fucking brownies with an ounce of weed baked in them and the fucking Winstons... It was just what the doctor ordered. Lessing and I got high as shit. These were some fucking brownies. <laughs> they tasted like straight weed. You could hardly taste anything else. Just weed and a hint of chocolate. We got shit-faced on these fucking things. If we'd had to deal with anybody but Borges and Burns that afternoon, we'd have been fucked. Anybody else probably would have sent us to fucking Leavenworth or shot us on the spot, a summary execution to make an example of us. It was that serious. We were so high. Burns and Borges rolled in around when I was getting into the perks. I said to Lessing, you want one of these? He said, no thanks. I said, come on, motherfucker, don't disdain my favors. You always look out. What's mine is yours. He said, I used to be addicted to heroin. This isn't heroin. I robbed convenience stores. Suit yourself. Burns and Borges said they'd take some perks since I was offering. I said, fuck that, have some brownies. And they did. And they, too, got retarded.
I ended up keeping the pills for myself. I did give one the Borges because I kind of had to, but that was all. The rest I kept. Still, they didn't hold me but a few days. When we didn't have any proper drugs, there was always computer duster to huff. It was summer and people were getting killed. People got killed more in summer, and we could be killed, and we had no way to know. About Emily, I guess I was deluding myself, somewhat knowingly, or just knowingly, or maybe I didn't know, I can't remember. Often I used to come in in the mornings from IED ambushes, and I would go online and check my email. A lot of times she didn't email, and when she did it usually wasn't good. She'd say she was ashamed of what I was doing, but I didn't ever tell her what I was doing. She knew as much as she had before I left. I'd bought a bootleg DVD from the Haji shop. It was a movie about the lives of emperor penguins and what they endured so they could keep living in Antarctica and making babies and all that. I thought the world of these fucking penguins. I wrote to Emily and told her she ought to see the movie about the penguins. She didn't. Then I said, of course she can't see it. She's in the fucking wilderness. So I ordered it for her on Amazon. Amazon sent the movie about the penguins to her in the wilderness. She emailed me and said the movie was stupid and the penguins were stupid. I thought, why would she do that? Couldn't she just pretend for me? I would have pretended for her. But she had said the penguins were stupid. That was exactly what she had said. Stupid. I thought she is good, so I have done something wrong. After having my heart broken by email, typically what I'd do was drink coffee and smoke cigarettes. If there was a card game going, I'd play and I'd lose some money. Mostly I had bad luck at cards, but early in the morning there was often no card game. There was often nothing worth reading, no one awake, so what I'd do was I'd look at the Ikea catalog. I had copied and pasted a lot of shit about Ikea furniture into a Word document, and I'd look through it and think about what kind of furniture Emily and I would buy when we went to live together. I thought if I did this shit in Iraq, and I lived through it, and I saved some money, it would be enough for me and Emily to start a life together. And we would have a savings, and she would have a degree, and I could go to school, and it would be okay, because it wouldn't be just something given to me. I'd need to be smart, like Emily. And she would become something, and I would become something, a librarian, maybe, and we would have enough money and be middle class and want for nothing, and we would be independent of everyone, and no old bastards who voted for wars could tell me anything because I'd done what they'd wanted, so. I used to smoke Miamis and drink coffee and be tense after being out all night lying in the fields north of the FOB, I didn't actually watch much porn, you know. I mean, I'd seen some. I'd seen a few fuck vans and all that, but mostly I didn't fuck with it. I felt like cheating. And when I'd jerk off in the porta shitters, I didn't think of other girls. I'm not ashamed of this. I tried to be good. Chapter 36 one of my jobs was to get the pus out of the abscess on Sergeant Bautista's ass. He was a big guy, and he had a big ass. He was from New York City. Neither one of us was wild about the arrangement, but it couldn't be helped. I'd go see him in his room around 20-hundred. 
He'd be playing Madden, and he'd lie on his stomach with his pants down past his ass, and I'd take yesterday's sterile gauze out of the abscess on his ass and clean the pus out of the abscess. It doesn't smell as bad as it did yesterday, I'd say. That's good, he'd say. I'd say, yeah, that's a good sign. Then I'd put some sterile gauze in the abscess, folding the strip of gauze triangularly and poking it down into the hole with tweezers. I'd say, okay, see you tomorrow. And I'd go and hand out the shit pills. Also, sometimes guys got crotch rot. Mostly this was all I ever did. I was not a hero. A month before he was immolated on Route Polk, Sergeant Caves found a Haji dog wandering around the company area. The Haji dog was just a few weeks old. He could fit in the palm of your hand. He needed food, and Caves gave him food and adopted him as his own and called him Sonny. After Caves got killed, 1st Platoon took care of Sonny, and Sonny got to stick around. Sonny was well-liked because he was a very good dog, courageous, yet of a gentle nature, and when our company's dismount patrols left the wire in the daytime, it wasn't out of the ordinary to see Sonny going along up and down the line. Then one morning, some pog from Foxtrot Company, name a Sergeant Teague, was out taking her walking exercise around the perimeter of the fob, and it took her past our company area. We just as soon she didn't come around. She looked a lot like a fucking gargoyle. Anyway, Sonny barked at her, and she got so traumatized from it that she went to the battalion talk to complain about Sonny and it followed that two heroes from HHC, officers, volunteered to come down to Echo Company and shoot Sonny. When they got there, they found him resting on his favorite spot beneath the shade trees by the horseshoe pit. They walked right up on him. Sonny didn't try and run because he wasn't afraid of soldiers. Maybe he thought they'd come to give him something to eat, perhaps a cheeseburger. Instead, they shot him in the snout. He got away and tried to hide himself under some boards. The two officers had to drop down into the prone to finish him off. They were wearing their ballistic eye protection, so it was all on the level. I don't remember exactly what I was doing when this happened, but I wasn't there. Probably I was kicking some doors in somewhere. Nothing dramatic or whatever, just doors. I'd kicked a hundred doors in. More like two hundred doors. Nothing ever came of it, not once, and I didn't get killed. The next day I was playing poker with the poker players. I'd been out on a patrol all the night before, and I should have been sleeping, but I wasn't because I could only sleep when I was on a patrol. That was the only time it appealed to me. So I didn't get much sleep, and I was burned out, and I was pissed about the dog when Arnold came in from Radio Guard to get me. He said, Get your stuff. QRF just got called out. I wasn't on QRF that day. I could have gone anyway, but... I didn't feel like it. I said, Sar Garcia from HHC is on QRF. He's covering for Sar Shu while Shu's on mid-tour leave. Sar Garcia will be in the aid station. You can find him there. But fuck you, Arnold. Fuck you, you goddamn motherfucker, you fucking bitch. You don't ever leave the goddamn wire. That's why you love this goddamn shit. Well, fuck you, Arnold. I'm not on the fucking thing, and I'm not going. Arnold left and got Garcia. Garcia went out with QRF. I stayed at the FOB and played poker. That's how I missed the big battle, the one when the battalion sent 40 Hajis to the garden with the rivers underneath it. And I'm glad I missed the battle because it was probably bullshit. 
and the army just murdered your dog anyway. Chapter 37 Specialist Grace looked like Jean-Michel Basquiat, and he was a Bradley gunner. His friend Carranza drove the Bradley. I hadn't seen much of either Grace or Carranza since Fort Hood. They were in Delta Company. We had different AOs. But sometimes I'd see them on the fob, and when I'd see them, I'd say hi, and they'd say hi. They were good people. This is what happened to them. They hit an IED up north of Checkpoint 9 during some big operation. I don't remember which big operation. There were so many. All the big operations had names. They had names so you knew they were big operations, but then nothing ever happened. Just IEDs. Just kicking doors, more IEDs, more doors. Grace and Carranza hit an IED. Carranza was wounded, he was in the driver's hatch, and his face was fucked up, and he was blind, and the Bradley was on fire. Carranza's fucking face was gone, but still, he thought to drop the ramp so the guys in the troop compartment could get out fast. Grace pulled Carranza out of the driver's hatch. Grace had taken some shrapnel, but the shrapnel had hit one of the Kevlar wings that were Velcroed to the shoulders of his IBA, so it hadn't hurt him. The battalion had had to reiterate the order about wearing the Kevlar wings since we didn't want to wear them because they looked retarded. It was enough of a trick getting the Hajis to take you seriously when you weren't wearing the wings. If you were wearing them, you might as well forget about it. They were a fucking disaster. They made it so you couldn't shoulder your rifle right. They tangled with the straps of your assault pack. They made the days seem hotter than they would have seemed otherwise, and the days were hot enough already. But the lamest thing about the wings was they only stopped the kinds of bullshit that would send you home early and relatively unscathed. They were useless when it came to stopping the real shit. The only practical use I ever found for the wings was you could stack them on a Humvee seat and sit on them while you rode around because even trivial bits of shrapnel were crucial where your junk was concerned. But apart from that, the wings were garbage. Most everybody would have been court-martialed rather than wear them. But Grace wore his wings. They told him to wear them, and he did what he was told to do because he was pretty laid back about shit, and he took the shrapnel on one of the wings. The shrapnel would have wounded him. Maybe he'd have gone to a hospital for a while, and he'd have had a little rest and then been just fine. He might have even got to go home. But the shrapnel didn't wound him because of the wings, and the pro-wing people made a big deal out of this. The last time I saw Specialist Grace, it was the day that all the enlisted on the FOB who weren't busy doing something real important got called down to the defect to see the sergeant major of the army. He had come to pay us a visit. I got caught up in it. I was standing in line waiting to get into the defect. The battalion sergeant major was out there chopping it up with Grace, and he wanted all of us to hear him talking. He said to Grace, You had a close call, huh? Grace said, Yes, Sergeant Major. It was a good thing that you were wearing all your body armor, wasn't it? Yes, sir, Major. What about these prima donnas that don't want to wear all their body armor because they like to style and profile? I don't know, sir, Major. At no point did the battalion sergeant major mention that the IED that had caught Grace ineffectually on the wings had also gone through however many inches of Bradley Hull armor, or the PFC Carranza didn't have much in the way of his face anymore, and his legs were fucked too. When we were inside the defect, the sergeant major of the army was introduced, and he said a few words. 
The sergeant major of the Army was the highest-ranking non-commissioned officer in the Army, so it was supposed to be a treat, maybe? He was a real piece of shit. He thanked us all for our hard work, and then he told us about a change being made to the Army's pension plan for retirees. He said the Army was going to defer pension payments to retirees until said retirees were retirement age, meaning in their 60s. He said the changes would affect only future enlistees, but that didn't stop some of the old hands from giving the sergeant major of the Army a hard time. One old hand stood up and said, Now what exactly is going on here, Sar Major? And the sergeant major of the Army said, We looked at it, and we saw that since so many ex-military go on to be CEOs, that the pension payments could be deferred. But keep in mind that these changes don't pertain to anyone in this room. Next question. Are we going to get our pensions or not, Sar Major? Everybody will get his or her pension. This is guaranteed. We took a look at it, and since so many ex-military go on to be CEOs, these pension payments could be deferred. After the big meeting, Sergeant Coljo buttonholed the Sergeant Major of the Army outside the DFAC and said he had to do something because the Army wasn't letting us kill enough people. They're not letting us do our job, Sar Major, he said. You should have seen the look on the old motherfucker's face. It was beautiful. And then Grace was killed on a dismount patrol two weeks later. Another IED. He was wearing his wings, but they didn't do shit for him. Chapter 38 Some days you couldn't remember the last time it had rained. It was one of those days, but... It came to be a very good day, because there was a sandstorm. The sandstorms were wonderful. Medevacs couldn't fly in them, so all patrols got canceled. This one was a good one. The wind blew and blew, and you couldn't see shit. Somebody said, look at this motherfucker go. And somebody said, yeah, it's really going. Then somebody said, it's raining. Raining! We all ran outside, and sure enough, there were raindrops. The raindrops felt good on your face. You couldn't remember the last time it had rained. You'd come to want rain very much, and here it was. You had it. Rain. Everybody was coming out now. It's raining, it's raining, it's fucking raining, I can't believe it. I can't fucking believe it's fucking raining. Then somebody said, it's not rain. It's not rain? They said, it's not rain. It's not rain. It's not rain? No, he said. All the fucking porta shitters are knocked over. Fuck. It's not rain. It's the fucking porta shitters. Fuck. Then came another hot bullshit day. The heat and the light made your brain skip when you tried to hold a thought. Thoughts wouldn't come in a straight line and you saw translucent red stars. It was bullshit that I was on this patrol to begin with. I'd been out on an IED ambush all the night before, and I was spent. Plus, Coljo had shot a dog on our way back at dawn, and I like dogs. Shu found me in the morning after I came in. Bad news, he said. You've got to go out again in an hour. I stared at him. I've been out ten times already this fucking week. What the fuck day is it? These motherfuckers are going to work me to death, you know that? He suppressed a smile. Sorry, dude. They put you on the patrol roster. I didn't even know till a minute ago. It'll be easy, though. It's just a census patrol. 
I spoke with Lieutenant Evans already, and he knows your situation. All you'll have to do is stay with the vehicles on the road. I nodded to say I'd make it. The census patrol left around nine. By noon, the dismounts would be suffering. I was glad I wouldn't be with them. I'd be sleeping in one of the trucks instead. Then I'd come back, maybe play a little cards, maybe go to the Haji shop and buy some bootleg DVDs, some Miamis, maybe a little wild tiger. Go and get some dinner. The three Humvee convoy went real slow up route, Martha. We were past OP2, the last OP on Martha, and there was no telling what might be on the road. The convoy stopped. The dismounts got out and assembled on the road. I stayed where I was in the back of Evan's truck, and I kept quiet. I didn't want to draw any attention to myself. I started to believe I'd really make it all right. Then Private Dallas knocked on the window. The lieutenant wants you. Wants me? Yeah, he says bring your stuff, we're moving out. No, I'm supposed to stay here with the vehicles. The lieutenant says you're going. I had a special dislike for census patrols. Whenever we'd come to a house where there was somebody sick or ailing or in any way injured, the patrol leader would tell all the Hajis that I was a doctor who had medicine, and he'd have me examine everyone. It didn't matter that I had no medicine, no antibiotics, no drugs except ibuprofen and the two kinds of shit pills and the morphine auto-injectors. It didn't matter that I wasn't a doctor. It didn't matter if the Haji had a brain tumor. I was supposed to pretend to be some kind of great healer. The first household of the day brought out an old haji who had some variety of advanced rheumatism, I think. I took a look at him. His knees were his chief complaint. He took a seat and gathered his man dress up high so that his testicles featured prominently. Dallas said, I think he wants you to suck his balls, Doc. I gave the old haji a three-day supply of ibuprofen and told him to go to a hospital. The patrol continued. Lieutenant Evans had the sort of intentions with which you can pave a road to hell, but I loathed him, and I loathed his patrol. The sun was blazing away on us, blazing away on the scenery. After some hours of getting our brains cooked and dragging all the stupid fucking gear around and knowing it was all useless, we were worn out. Some of the guys didn't look like they were up to it anymore. I said, sir, it's really hot, and these guys are beat, and we're not accomplishing anything out here. We might want to think about heading back. No. Sir, I said no. Okay. Yeah, okay, you're right, sir. Let's keep going. Ask all these fucking hajis how many fucking goats they fucking own till one of your guys has a fucking heat stroke out here. The lieutenant was surprised. I realized I had just done something insane, but I was already going, so I didn't stop. How many fucking times are you going to ignore me when I try to tell you something you need to know? I don't tell you these things because I like to hear myself talk. I tell you these things because I want to help you. I'm trying to help you, Lieutenant. You remember when I told you not to drive in that shit because we were going to get stuck? What happened? We got stuck, didn't we? And four guys got killed. You killed my friends. This last part was a bit much. He hadn't killed them, and they weren't my friends. They were more like acquaintances, really, and then there was one other thing. If he hadn't got us stuck, we'd have been the ones who got killed that day. But you didn't say these things. I didn't hear what he was saying. I couldn't hear anything. I flipped in the bird, and I said, fuck you and fuck your patrol. I walked away. I went back to the road. 
When I got there, I went to Evans's truck. Specialist Sullivan was up in the turret. He was monitoring the radio. He said, the lieutenant says you need to come back. Tell him to get fucked. Really? Tell Lieutenant Evans to get fucked. Sullivan keyed the radio. Uh, he says he's not coming. Evans said that would also be fine. Ten minutes later, the dismounts came back to the road. I'd calmed down some, and I was ready for something bad to happen to me. Evans waved me over to him, and I went over, and we walked a ways down from everybody else. He said, that wasn't a good thing you did. I didn't want to look at him. I said, I don't know, sir. It was fucked up of me. I apologize. I don't know what happened. I just kind of went crazy for a minute, you know? You realize I could have you court-martialed for what you just did, right? Yeah. I'm not going to do that, so don't worry. I said, thanks. I'm not going to say anything to anybody about this when we get back. Nobody's going to say anything about it. And he didn't say anything, and no one else did, and nothing happened to me. I sent a check to Roy with a note. More perks, oxies would be fine. And goddamn if he didn't send me four eighties. Roy was paying sixty dollars for eighties in those days, not great. Still, I was only snorting twenties then. A twenty would take me there. I'd get four good days out of an eighty. But goddamn if the mail wasn't slow. Chapter 39 When Arnold got killed, we had to pack him out. Arnold was dead as shit. Packing up his stuff was no good. He didn't need it. Who needed it? There'd been seven of us in the room. Now there were five. Shu had been on the patrol that Arnold got killed on. He told me what it had looked like. He said it was bad, just a complete mess, like somebody'd run him through a juicer. That's bad luck, I said. He hardly ever left the wire. Shu said, yeah, that was only the third time he'd gone out. Goddamn. Then I had the day off. It was good. Burns was hanging around as well, telling me some shit about something. He used to smoke weed when he worked at the airport in Boston, and he hit an airplane with the fuel truck he was driving. I was high as shit. Burns took a hit off his Miami and drank some of his coffee. Then Shu walked in. Bad news, guys. You're going to have to stop smoking in here. This was the worst news. Burns and I each smoked about four packs of Miamis a day. Burns said, You're kidding me, why? I said, Sar, this is unreasonable. You've got a new guy moving in here coming over from HHC. He's going to be one of Sergeant Drummond's Joes. His name's Specialist Branson or some shit like that. He's moving in here today. Burns said, Come on, you're joking. I said, Sar, we smoke. Lessing smokes. Cheetah smokes. We all smoke except for Fuentes. And I don't mind, said Fuentes from over where he was in the corner. It doesn't smell any worse in here than it would if they didn't smoke. Shu said, enough of this noise. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. No more smoking. Specialist Branson showed up an hour later. He came walking in the room like he owned the fucking place, the room we had lived in over eight months. He was a big motherfucker with a bald pink head and a blonde mustache. He didn't say hello. Lessing had come back in the meantime. We told him what was being done to us. He said, so this is the piece of shit. 
I nodded. Burns set his book down and looked at Ranson. What's your fucking problem, man? I'm serious, man. Who the fuck do you think you are? Branson looked around the room. He didn't seem to be worried about the way things were going. You could tell right away he didn't waste a lot of time worrying about things. I said, we smoke in here and you can get fucked. Branson went over and looked at the wall above Lessing's bunk where Lessing had stapled 50 Maxim girls to the wall. Lessing said, hey, cocksucker, do you mind? Branson left. He hadn't said anything, not one word. Ten minutes later, Sergeant Drummond walked in. Lessing, you're gonna have to take those girls off your wall. Excuse me, sir? You heard me, Lessing. Branson's a Christian, and those girls on your wall are offensive to him. Then tell him to go fuck himself. Oh, come on, son. It ain't gonna hurt you none to take them old girls down off the wall. Just put them in a book so that way you can look at them whenever you want to. How's that sound? Lessing lit a Marlboro Red and looked at his boots. He was too upset to continue the conversation. Drummond was pleased. When he left, he was laughing at us. Here comes old Branson, he said. Make way for old Branson, here he comes. Shu came back. What's the fucking problem now? Lessing said. Sar Drummond said I have to take my pictures down because of the new guy, Sar. Shu said, you're kidding me. He said, no, he wasn't kidding. Burns said, this guy's a piece of shit. Please don't do this to us, Sergeant. I said, he's telling you the truth, Sar. This guy Branson comes in, doesn't say shit to anybody, looks around, leaves, and then he's got Sar Drummond in here two seconds later, telling Lessing he's got to take all his pictures off his wall. Shu considered this, then he said, no. No, that goes too far. And he left and told Drummond to find somewhere else to put Branson. And we smoked cigarettes, as we were wont to do. Chapter 40 By the time it was fall, you could tell we were all a little off. In that state, none of us could have passed in polite society. Those of us who'd been kicking in doors and tearing houses up and shooting people, we were psychotic, and we were ready for it to end. There was nothing interesting about it anymore. There was nothing. We had wasted our time, we had lost. People kept dying, in ones and twos, no heroes, no battles, nothing. We were just the help, glorified scarecrows. Just there to look busy, up the road and down the road, expensive as fuck, dumber than shit. There were rumors of death, the occasional murders, the horrifying endings. Someone from Bravo Company, the medic quit, said he couldn't face going out anymore. One of EOD's people, there was a second IED under the first one, gone, etc., etc. We set up a patrol base. Haji knocked it down with a car bomb. More women got shot to death, a woman holding a baby, a pregnant woman. At least it was fall. We had arrived in fall, so there was that point of reference. We were getting close. Really, a year is nothing. It takes that long to learn to be any good in the field, and then once you know what you're doing, you're on your way out. It had been a while that I'd had the feeling that Staff Sergeant North hated my fucking guts. Maybe half the times I'd left the wire were with North. I think I was just about on every patrol North went on that year, over a hundred patrols probably with him. We'd been through some shit, got bored as hell together. 
Now the motherfucker didn't like me at all. That was fine. There was no danger in it. Just he'd talk shit like I'd light up in Miami when we were somewhere in the daytime and he'd come up and get shitty about it and say, this isn't fucking smoke break time. And right in front of the motherfuckers like I was some fucking cherry. For his own part, he was kind of fucked. He'd start letting loose with his 203, lob some grenades around just for the shits of it. Wouldn't even call in a test fire. That's when you knew he was in one of his moods. On a day like that, he might walk the whole patrol into the river and we'd be bathing in shit and parasites. Still, that wasn't personal. What was personal was North got to coming at me wrong all the time. It really started after I said all that greasy shit to Lieutenant Evans and walked off from that patrol. Now, if North had something to say to me, he'd either have someone else say it, or he'd look off at something far away, or he'd turn his back when he talked. It'd have made sense if North didn't also think that Evans was an asshole, and it'd have made sense if North was always about his discipline, but what with his sending 203 rounds downrange for no fucking reason and talking shit about Evans when Evans wasn't around, it wasn't like North was completely all the way all right. So, who the fuck knows? Part of it was, I wasn't as fucking wild about America as North was. That and the shit wasn't any fun for me. All it amounted to was some more people were dead and Emily was probably getting fucked by other guys. Probably every time I cleared a house, some fucker was balls deep in Emily. I was lovesick. And yeah, it must have been nice to be North, to be tough, to believe in this, to be a killer, but I wasn't ever tough, and I wasn't ever gonna be. If I was some kind of veteran now, it was only on account of luck that I hadn't got my soft ass killed. Sometimes that's enough to have somebody fooled, but North knew I was a fake because he'd been there half the time and seen it. And I'm sure there were some other people who knew, but no one hated me for it half as much as North did. Corporal Lockhart and Specialist Jeffries lived in a room across the way. They had lived there all year, it was a little room. You'd hardly notice it if you didn't know it was there. Specialist Houseman also lived with them. None of them had left the wire much. Specialist Houseman would have been all right, but he had a tendency to bitch all the time. He bitched more than he was worth, so he was set aside and people had forgotten about him, and he was stuck. Corporal Lockhart and Specialist Jeffries didn't bitch as much as Houseman, but they were especially frail, and somebody had made them the company's arms room clerks. They listened to My Chemical Romance a lot, and they talked about what a fucking cunt Corporal Lockhart's wife was, and they had an idea to catch mice and make snuff films with the mice. I saw one of the snuff films they made, a mouse in an empty ammo can, a small white hand, Lockhart's, I believe, descended into the frame. The hand held the can of Zippo fluid, and it squeezed the can. The mouse was soaked. The hand disappeared from the frame. The hand came back. It held a lighter now, ignited the mouse. The mouse ran back and forth, a little fireball, stopped dead in its tracks, tipped over like a ditched bicycle. There was always a fuckload of mice running around the building, so they had plenty to work with, and they made, I don't know how many of these mice snuff films. They thought they were clever, and they might tell you about how in one of them they drowned a mouse, or how in another they dismembered a mouse and cut the mouse's head off with a cigar cutter, or how in another one, their masterpiece, they crucified a mouse on popsicle sticks and disemboweled the crucified mouse while it was on the cross. 
Houseman didn't know what to do. He kept trying to get moved to another room, but he couldn't get moved. It isn't fair, he said. Back in Killeen, Texas, Corporal Lockhart's wife had grown emotionally distant. In the time since he had gone off to Iraq, she had started partying a lot and working as a dancer and fucking a guy named Dale and spending all of Corporal Lockhart's money. She told him all about the shit in more detail than you'd have expected she would. It seemed a little over-vindictive, but in her defense, she was hot, and Corporal Lockhart was the type of guy who went around crucifying mice. Chapter 41 Haji hit Delta's patrol base. The road along the west bank of the river was the only way to get there, and it was night, and we were obviously going to get hit. Haji's thinking was he could throw a few clips and an RPG into the patrol base, and if he made some bodies there, great, and if not, he had left an IED on the only road in, and QRF was sure to hit it. The first track missed the pressure plate. Our Humvee missed it, too. And this was good for us in the Humvee that we had missed it because it was big enough to have fucked us up something tough. The pressure plate was at a point in the road where the road was half gone from old IEDs. The pressure plate spanned all that was left of the blacktop there. But at the same time, the road was so torn up there that a driver might skip it altogether. The third vehicle, Evans' track, set it off. The explosion was dull, like it had gone off underneath. Perez was up in the Humvee turret yelling, IED! IED! Sullivan let off the gas and the truck slowed to a stop. I slipped my aid bag onto one shoulder and opened the back driver's side door. I was half out when Sullivan hit the gas again. The Humvee bucked forward and I ate shit. Queso Santiago ran past as I was unfucking myself. He was the vehicle commander of the lead track. He had taken it upon himself to go see about the one that had been hit, and I was running that way too. I caught up with Queso Santiago. He was crawling all over the front of the disabled track. Everybody was fine, but the driver, Private Miller, and he wasn't bad off. He had taken shrapnel on the inside of his left thigh. Hueso Santiago pulled him out of the hatch. The hole in Miller's thigh was big enough to put a thumb into it with room to spare, but he'd be all right. The shrapnel hadn't found the artery or anything. I packed the hole with gauze and put an ace wrap around the thigh so as to keep pressure on the wound. I started an IV and gave him morphine. I told Hueso Santiago to call the medevac in as urgent surgical because Shu had once told me to always call our guys in as urgent surgicals even if they weren't. This was an easy casualty. The casualty had a face. He wasn't burned up. He didn't bleed out internally. He'd be all right. He'd get a purple heart, and the purple heart would get him laid a few more times than he would have otherwise, and he didn't even have to get hurt that bad. The thing about Purple Hearts is you can't get hurt too bad. You get hurt too bad and girls won't fuck you no matter how many Purple Hearts you have. QRF2 took a long time getting out to us with EOD and the Wrecker. There was some shit going on at the FOB. People were saying, the FOB's been overrun! This turned out to be an exaggeration. What really happened was a few of the battalion snipers had gone up in the scaffolds of the power plant and a guy out in front of the Delta Company talk saw the snipers and mistook them for Haji. So he shot at them. The shots missed the snipers and came down on the Echo Company talk. 
Echo thought the shots were coming from the scaffolds, having also seen the snipers up there. Echo started shooting. The shots missed the snipers and came down on the Delta Company talk. Delta was now certain that the snipers were the Hodge, and a lot of Delta guys opened up on the snipers. A firefight ensued between two American rifle companies, with the battalion snipers caught in the crossfire. In the midst of all the confusion, an interpreter set up an IED in the battalion weight room. No one was seriously injured. Emily had left the state of Washington. She was back in Elba. She was going to school. She wasn't out in the fucking wilderness anymore, and I could call her again. So I called her when I could call her, but there wasn't much to talk about. All I could say was I'd be back soon. I didn't recognize that this was something she maybe wasn't looking forward to, even though I knew and I'd known the whole time. Still, you hold with the lie. I paid her tuition for fall semester. She'd asked me for the money, so I thought we were good. Chapter 42 The worst possible outcome was to get killed at the end, after all the bullshit. If you weren't going to go home, it was better to get killed early on. That was the logic. You didn't want to get killed at the end. Two from our battalion were killed that morning. We were going out that night, a squad worth of guys from 3rd Platoon, led by Evans. It was supposed to be our last patrol of the tour, and the roster was a mix and match of shitbags and fat guys. I couldn't imagine us being effective, but... We were just going out in Humvees and making a short trip up and down Route Martha, so it didn't matter. We weren't out long when the company net said a raptor was sending back video of four armed men. The armed men were east of us. Coordinates were given. Could Lieutenant Evans get there? He looked at his map. It's a kilometer, roughly. I said, sir, this is a bad idea. Why is it a bad idea? With all due respect, sir... They've got us out here with three of the most obese shitbags in the company, and those are your dismounts. Think about it. Do you think you can take those guys dismounted off-road in the fucking dark through all those shit canals for a click? That's going to make a lot of noise. Those hajis will hear us coming all the way. We might as well drag a fucking piano with us. I've seen those guys on dismount patrols before, sir. They're a fucking disaster. They fall all over themselves. Borges can shoot, but he can't walk for shit, and the rest of them are an out-and-out -out fucking liability, no upside. You can't expect to take those guys and one medic, not one NCO, and shoot it out with four armed men who will hear you coming from a mile away. I'm sorry, sir, but it's a real bad idea. I don't know. Sir, with all due respect, it'd be different if we had any chance of succeeding, but look at what you've got to work with. It won't end well. Best case scenario, it'll be a waste of time, but do what you think is right, and I'll go along. He keyed the radio. Echo Mike, this is Echo Tree Six Actual. It doesn't look like we can get there from where we are. Our last night on the FOB, some of us got together and passed around some cans of duster. We huffed duster until Sergeant Bautista lost touch with his central nervous system. He swayed back and forth like a blind piano player. A stream of drool ran from Bautista's lip and pooled in his lap. We said, oh shit, look at that. We asked, was he all right? After a minute, he said he was all right. Then we huffed one last can of duster. 
and it was all right, like we were kids. Part 4 Hummingbird Chapter 43 I saw a picture of you Looking at a picture of me Time fades slow So I think so ridiculously I saw remnants of them Underneath breathing eyes Waving out post-consciously Your thoughts are on The airliner touched down at Fort Hood Around 11 on Tuesday morning we were bussed from the airfield to a parking lot on Battalion Avenue. We were told to line up on the sidewalk because we were supposed to go running into a gymnasium where a lot of guys' families were. A subwoofer was going in the gym and you could hear the kick drum a hundred yards down the avenue. I was at the end of the line. We started moving up. Ahead, guys were running into the gymnasium. The bass line was coming through along with the kick drum now. It was mostly Joes toward the end of the line, mostly Joes who hated shit like this. The dog and pony shows. I didn't feel like I'd done anything to go running into gymnasiums about. There were smoke machines and we came in through the smoke. The DJ was playing the refrain from Disco Inferno on a loop. Burn, baby, burn. Burn, baby, burn. Burn, baby, burn. The families were in the bleachers cheering and yelling guys' names out and waving and taking pictures and filming. The soldiers formed up in ranks. First Sergeant Hightower told us anybody who lived off post was free to leave after they picked up their duffel bags. Anybody who was going to live in the barracks would report to the barracks and wait to be assigned a room. He said we were on pass till next Monday on account of that Thursday being Thanksgiving. He said we could fall out and we fell out. Guys looked for their people, husbands embraced wives, fathers embraced children. I had to get the fuck out of the gymnasium because I felt a panic attack coming on, dry heaves and everything. And I guess I was ungrateful, given all the people in the gymnasium and the DJ, but they weren't my people and fuck the DJ. You do the best you can. Things went faster than expected at the barracks. They had everything sorted out already since they'd been expecting us. We only needed to sign for our rooms. This is when I got separated from Echo Company and reassigned to HHC. Suddenly, I wasn't a line medic anymore. My roommate was a random motherfucker I didn't know. He had come to the battalion mid-tour and had been in HHC the whole time. I don't remember his name. I remember he bought an Xbox 360 and he drank Pepsi and wore eyeglasses and had brown hair. He had a little headset so he could talk to his girlfriend in fucking Kansas or whatever while he played video games. That's all I remember about him. I went to the mall in Killeen and I bought a cell phone at a kiosk. I got ripped off on the contract. People had started texting while I'd been away and I didn't know what texting was supposed to cost. I called my parents and told them I'd made it back okay. My mom said she and my dad were flying down to Texas because a friend of my dad's was about to die in Dallas. They'd arrive in Dallas on Thursday, and Dallas is only a few hours from Colleen, so it would be easy enough for me to get up there and see them. I said I'd try and do that. 
I took a cab to Walmart and bought some clothes and some bedding and a table lamp. I went back to post and drank heavily. There was a 24-hour PX gas station liquor store on post near the main gate, so drinks weren't ever going to run out. When I was drunk, I called Emily, and it didn't go well. I was hurt as fuck that she wasn't there. I wanted her there so bad. I said I knew she'd fucked around on me. I said, you broke my heart, you fucking cunt. She said, what are you talking about? Baby, you sound like a psycho. I said, why would you do that? What the fuck did I ever do to you? She said she hadn't fucked around. It was a bad time. Wednesday night, I was over on the Echo Company side of the barracks, and Borges got in an argument with Houseman. I don't know what it was about, but Borges tried to stab Houseman, and Houseman got away and called 911. The police came with North. North was CQ that night. The police weren't MPs. They were Killeen PD. I'd already explained to Houseman that he had fucked up and that he needed to unfuck things, and Lessing had done the same for Borges, and it seemed like we were all on the same page. The police split us up. One of them was over talking to Borges and Lessing, and the other was talking to me and Houseman, and I helped Houseman tell the police there had been a misunderstanding. No one had actually tried to stab anybody. There had been some loose talk, that was all. Regrettable, yes, but really no big deal. We were sorry for the inconvenience. Loose talk? Yes, sir, loose talk. He said we were full of shit. He said, I think you're full of shit, and I think you're full of shit. He was pointing his finger in our faces and everything. I asked him why he was acting like that. I didn't fucking swear at you, I said. Why the fuck are you swearing at me? I just got back yesterday, motherfucker. I guess that shit means you're fucking welcome, doesn't it? North told me to calm down, and I heard something in his voice like he wished he could be the one arresting me. I felt sick, and I tried to ignore it. Houseman said, look, officer, I'm sorry that you got called down here and that I've wasted your time. It was a misunderstanding. No one tried to stab me. Borges was a ways down the hall with Lessing and the other policemen. Now he turned towards us and shouted, Don't listen to them, officer. Everything they're saying is lies. Somehow, nobody went to jail and everything was okay. There were no hard feelings. We all went to Bennigan's, Borges, Houseman, Lessing, and I. The waitress was no less than a hundred months pregnant. She had the name Sean tattooed in big script on the side of her neck, but it didn't discourage Borges from trying to seduce her. He was unsuccessful, and the waitress said she wasn't going to serve Borges any more Long Island iced teas. Then Lessing said, Is that motherfucking Lieutenant Nathan? And it was Lieutenant Nathan. We went over and said hello to him. Nathan was a good guy. Maybe he was a bit fucked up from the brainwashing, but who wasn't? And he was glad to see us. He said, how you doing, man? We said we were good. He introduced us to his friend, another lieutenant. Nathan said the guy had been with the brigade's cab scout squadron. Oh, we said, okay. Nathan went to take a piss. We said to the cab scout lieutenant, you guys had a tough time up there. The cab scout lieutenant said, so did you guys. Yeah, we did. But I think ours was a little worse, he said. But we lost more killed than you did. That's true, he said, but we lost all ours in two months. Yours were more spread out. Nobody took offense. 
That was how it was. The Cav Scout lieutenant told us about a staff sergeant of his who'd gone up in flames and jumped out of his track and run down the road on fire. He said in all the confusion they hadn't known where this man had run off to, and they'd spent ten minutes looking for him before they found him in a bush in a ditch down the road all burned to death. Nathan came back from pissing and said, Let me buy all you men around, okay? How about that? We said that would be great, and thank you. What's your poison? I said I liked red label scotch. After he made sure we were all holding a double of red label, he said he'd like to make a toast. To two smells, he said. Pussy and gunpowder. Live for one, die by the other. Love the smell of both. We drank the drinks. Nathan went outside and threw up in a flower bed. Borges said he wanted to go to a strip club. We asked the lieutenants if they wanted to go, but they said no, they didn't. So we thanked Nathan again, and we parted company. Borges got thrown out of the strip club because he threw a Long Island iced tea at the DJ booth when the DJ wouldn't play any Cypress Hill. Lessing and Houseman got thrown out for letting on that they knew Borges. I was away trying to get a drink at the bar, and I didn't know what had happened. After a while, I figured out my friends were no longer with me. I didn't go looking for them, though. Maybe I'd have tried calling them, but I left my phone at the barracks. So I said, fuck it, and I finished my drink, and I had another. It got to be closing time. A dancer had just finished painting herself red, white, and blue to the Toby Keith song in the evening's grand finale. I was at a table by myself staring down at a gin and tonic I'd bought at last call. Someone said, Are you okay, honey? She was wearing plastic shoes. I said I was all right. I just got back with fourth ID and I was a little fucked up, but I was all right. She said some nice things and asked what I was doing for Thanksgiving. I said I wanted to go to Dallas to see my parents because they'd be there, but I didn't have a ride yet. She said she was driving up to Dallas to see her family, and she could give me a ride if I wanted. I said thanks, and that would be good. She gave me her number and told me to call her in the morning. I met her at the mall. I gave her some gas money, and we went on our way, north on 35. We were halfway to Dallas when she asked me if I wanted any Vicodin. I said I'd like some. I saw the scar on her arm. It ran from her elbow halfway down to her wrist. She told me about the car wreck she'd been in. She said she had been driving her niece and they'd got into an accident on the freeway. Her niece had got hurt too. Firemen had had to cut both of them out of the car. She said her niece had been terrified and screaming because the girl was bleeding from the head and help couldn't get to her. She said she hated to remember that she had put her niece through that. I said it wasn't like she'd done it on purpose. Things just happened. My parents were staying at a hotel in Fort Worth. She dropped me off in the parking lot. I wished her luck. She said all right, and she drove away. I had Thanksgiving dinner with my parents at the Houlihan's next door to the hotel. Then we went to the hospital to see the dying man. His wife was 20 years younger than he was. She was his second wife. They used to work together. My dad said, this is our son. He's just back from Iraq. The lady didn't give a shit, but she tried. She said, my brother's in the army. He's some kind of mechanic or something. They go behind enemy lines. We left it at that. My folks asked her how she was holding up. She said she was holding up okay, even though his first wife and his first kids were giving her a hard time and she was all alone. My dad said he wanted me to see his friend. 
We went into the room where he was laid up on a ventilator. There wasn't much left of him, and each breath was like it would break him in half. He may as well have been dead for all the good breathing did him. They'd had a little girl in a house and a golden retriever. We went to the house after we left the hospital and my parents talked to his wife some more for about an hour. They said for her to let them know if there was anything they could do. She said thanks and that they were very kind. But she was just saying things. They were all just talking and everyone knew that nothing would be all right. That night I talked to Emily on the phone. She told me what I already knew when I slept on the bathroom floor. My parents drove me back to Killeen in the morning. It was taking a long time because traffic was backed up for miles on account of an accident that would take the whole day to clear off the road. Some more people had been killed, and my dad got to talking about his friends some, how they were before they'd got old. Chapter 44 a funny thing happened to me once. After we got married, Emily went and had electrolysis done, and then she took a series of lovers, and then there was the day that I found out I'd been something like the hundredth one to see her electrolysis. And this devastated me. But, in all fairness, I had gone to Iraq, and in all fairness, our marriage was a lie. Maybe she'd thought I'd get killed and would never find out. My last three months in the army down in Texas, I was drinking two-fifths of gin a night. I shit blood, I farted blood, I jerked off in bathroom stalls, not feeling so good. I went home for Christmas, and there was a girl. She said she was on her period, so I titty-fucked her while I was wanting to die. She said, do you mind not hitting me in the face with your cock? I went back to Texas, and it was a little better. People knew what it was like. And there were a lot of them losing their shit down in Texas, so Texas was good like that. You didn't feel like you were that fucked up as long as you were in Texas. But then I was really getting out of the army. My time was up. And you'd think that was all good, but it wasn't all good. I felt like I was abandoning my people. Really, they didn't give a fuck if I was leaving or not, but at the time, that was what it felt like to me, that I was abandoning my people. I thought, maybe I ought to stay. But I didn't stay. I left. The fuckers made me sign up for the National Guard before they'd let me go, but they let me go and I got the fuck out. I went back to Ohio. I stopped off in Elba on the way. Emily wanted a divorce. So we got divorced and then I went home. I had a little money and started getting fucked up on drugs. I felt that if I had a little money and I could get fucked up on drugs, then I could make it and something good would happen eventually. What happened was, I got coked up one night in March and called Emily in the middle of the night, and I said, I forgive you. I need you so bad. Are you fucking anyone right now? I don't care what you did. I won't mention it, but I don't think I can do this without you. She said, what do you mean? Do I have to fucking spell it out? I'd rented an apartment on Coventry Road in Cleveland Heights, and Emily moved in the first week of that April and tried living with me. She'd just graduated from college with honors, and she was beautiful and golden, so whatever. I really fucking tried. I bought some stupid furniture. I thought, this is what people do when they settle down. I took Emily to the theater, and I bought her a dress to wear. She went and returned it for another dress, and she put that one on, and I put on the one suit that I had, and 
we took some one-milligram Xanaxes and went to the theater. It was a one-woman show about Ella Fitzgerald. I'd bought the tickets way in advance. Emily liked Ella Fitzgerald a lot. Anyway, we got there, and we were the only ones dressed up. There was a lot of middle-aged and older people from the suburbs there, and they were all wearing L.L. Bean and shit. Middle-aged people with money couldn't wear a fucking sport coat or nothing. They deserved vomit. This was the life we fought for. The show was all right. Then Emily and I went home and took some more Xanax and blacked out and went to sleep, and James Lightfoot tried to call me, but I couldn't hear the phone ringing. And that was the night he got arrested trying to break into my apartment building, except it wasn't my apartment building. He tried to break into the wrong building. The cops found a knife on him. Drugs were involved. My first guard meeting wasn't a smash hit. Everybody thought I was a prick because I was bad at hiding that I thought everybody was an asshole. I showed up high on Oxycontin, and I'd forgotten to wear an undershirt. I don't know, I just hated this fucking guard unit because it was an echo company, and half of them were off-duty sheriff's deputies and shit like that, and the way they talked made me sick. I was starting up going back to school again. I was going to a state school downtown, and I'd go to school, and Emily would snort all my cocaine and leave a note in the drawer saying she wanted me to stop doing cocaine. She was a real first-class bitch. This is why I loved her to death. It didn't work out. It was 70% my fault. I'd been getting into the Oxycontin pretty hard, and it made me feel a type of way so as I wasn't about taking any shit from her. Also, I was pretty fucked in the head, and I was being a sad, crazy fuck about some horrors I'd been through. It's true that you go through some horrors and it fucks you up. I don't care what violent motherfuckers say. If it doesn't fuck you up, then it's only because you're just too fucking stupid. Still, there's no use being a sad, crazy fuck about it because you kill yourself like that. And I was seeing ghosts. And I was talking too goddamn much. And I was making her miserable. I guess I wanted her to feel like shit. But what killed it was when I fell in love with an 18-year-old girl from Barcelona. Zoe. Technically, she was 17 and 350 days, but I didn't do anything. I just took her out for pancakes, and Emily found out about it. Roy, of all fucking people, told Emily about how I'd taken Zoe out for pancakes, plus he left most of the story out and made it sound like I'd been a real fuck about it. The thing was, I'd been drinking at Roy's, and I had asked several people if they'd like to have pancakes with me at the Severance IHOP, and all but one of them I asked were dudes. All but one of them weren't this girl Zoe. I'd said, Roy, you want to go to IHOP? He'd said, no. I'd said, Joe, you want to go to IHOP? The same. What about you, James Lightfoot? They'd all said they were good on pancakes. Only Zoe had said she wanted to go, so I went with her. And we were just going to have pancakes. Maybe I was in love with Zoe, but that had nothing to do with it. And maybe I was glad that it was just her who had gone. But I hadn't fixed it that way on purpose. Roy, though, he didn't tell Emily anything like that. He made it sound like it had been some kind of clandestine pancake date, and Emily got super fucking pissed at me. I came home, and she threw a glass against the wall and said, How do you like your fucking pancakes? No shit. That was the end. A few days later, Emily was gone. She took her stuff with her. The accent pillows, the crock pot, all of it. 
I didn't try to stop her. She was better off the way she was going, and I was sick of her. Zoe turned 18, but it didn't matter because I couldn't fuck for anything. I'd been gutted. I thought a lot about Emily and her lovers, the Puerto Rican with the Valiums, the wildlife photographer from France, Dave from the Giant Eagle. Those were just the ones I knew about. I wondered what they'd done with her, if they'd made her come. Had they cared about her, or had they just fucked her? Had she done stuff for them that she wouldn't do with me? Had she talked about me? Had she told them I deserved it? I more or less stopped going to school. School was too goddamn much. I felt like I knew too much already. I'd seen the end of the movie. The only thing school was good for was it got me out of two weeks of summer training with the National Guard. I'd said, I can't go. I'm signed up for school. I'm paying for it out of pocket. They'd said, we do this every summer. I'd said I hadn't known. They said everyone knows. I'd said you should have said something, and goddamn if I hadn't known what I was doing, but there was no way in hell I was going to hang out in the woods for two weeks and play soldiers with a lot of off-duty sheriff's deputies. I had more important things to do. I'd stay up by myself in the early morning and snort cocaine and snort oxy. A gram here, 40 milligrams there, another 40 milligrams. I'd steal Wi-Fi from my neighbors and watch porn on the internet. I'd write poetry. I'd drink vodka. Vodka was good because I could drink it all day and I didn't shit blood. I imagined all the porno girls were war widows and it made me sad. I'd get on the vodka and snort some powder at my little table and write five or six poems between three o'clock and nine in the morning. Poems mainly about true love being impossible. Poems mainly about what drugs I like to do. Poems mainly about barely legal girls getting down on some cocks. Poems mainly about what a piece of shit death was. Then I'd go to bed. I sent a few poems to the New Yorker, but they didn't make it in. Then my laptop crashed, and I lost my poems. I had to take James Lightfoot to the police station in Lindale. James Lightfoot was a good guy, but he was also fucked in the head. I don't know the details of exactly why or how he was fucked in the head, or if there were any such exact details. Probably he was just born fucked in the head. And I guess I'd been born that way, too. And it was only a coincidence that I had been to a war, and the war probably hadn't had much to do at all with my being fucked in the head. Anyway, James Lightfoot wasn't a happy person because people treated him like shit because he was almost normal, but then he wasn't, and he had a lazy eye, and he was real skinny like you knew he couldn't ever fight, and what all he had was just the things that no one gave a fuck to take from him. He had to pay off a warrant, and I had to take the money in and pay it off because there were other warrants out for him, and if he went into the police station, they'd arrest him. I snorted some coke before I left my apartment and I picked up James Lightfoot and we drove to Lindale. I had never been to Lindale before. It was the first I'd heard of it. We got to the police station and James Lightfoot gave me the money to pay the warrant off with and I went inside. I told the policeman behind the glass that I was there to pay James Lightfoot's warrant off and he said he needed to see my ID. So... I gave him my ID, and when he took it, he went back somewhere in the office, and I looked down at my hand, and there was coke all over my hand from where I'd touched the driver's license. I was embarrassed and not a little worried, but I stayed because if I left, I was fucked anyway, and then the policeman came back, and 
He didn't even mention the coke on my driver's license, so I was all right, and the warrant was paid off like that. We drove back to the east side and James Lightfoot wanted to sign some of his paychecks over to me so I could give him the equivalent in cash for them since he couldn't have a bank account because he was in check systems and his credit was totally fucked. We went to the bank and the teller wouldn't let me deposit the checks James Lightfoot had signed over to me, even though he was right there and he had his passport and I had enough money in my account to cover the checks. The bank people thought we were undesirables, so... We got nothing, and we left. I drove James Lightfoot to James Lightfoot's mom's house, and I got on the phone and called the bank's 800 number and told them that I was a war veteran and that the teller and the manager at the Warrensville branch had treated me like I was an undesirable and that I didn't know what I was going to do yet, but it sure as fuck wasn't right the way they treated people. And I got off the phone. I was in the driveway, and the summer burned my eyes, and everything had changed. And nothing had changed. Zoe would come around and spend time with me some days. We'd go to 80s night together every Sunday. I guess she liked me, despite my being a lame fuck. That or she liked cocaine. Maybe it was a little of both. She really was good, though. She played the cello, and she'd gone to school for that. And she could speak all these different languages. She would speak French and... I liked the way she did the R's. I'd ask her to do the R's, and she would. Then I'd try, but I couldn't do them for shit, and she thought that was funny. I tried to snort a line of coke off her stomach, but there was no air conditioning, and her skin was doing, so it didn't work, and I licked it off her. We went to the lake. She drove. She had a little white Volkswagen. I couldn't drive it because it was a stick, she ran all the stop signs. This was some kind of matter of principle with her, evidently. I don't know what specifically, but she hardly ever stopped for them. We got to the lake shore, and we were wearing our bathing suits. She looked real good in hers. She had the whole flawless complexion thing going for her. She was like a girl in a magazine. She looked good in the sunlight, whereas I looked bad. I hadn't been getting out much in the daytime, and I was very pale, you could see the marks all over from where the sand fleas had been at me the summer before, when I'd been out in the marshes and the shit canals and all that. I hadn't been eating much of late either, and I had the cocaine physique. And there were the cigarette burns, too, as the tendency in those days was to burn myself with cigarettes whenever I got down in the dumps. All in all, I was another stray dog with the mange. Many dead fish were washed up on the lake shore. They were all around us, on the sand, in their various phases of decomposing. But this was how it always was at the lake shore. The lake smelled like gasoline. We went in the water and we swam around some. We kissed. After a while, we drove back. And suddenly it was as if she didn't like me. As if she hadn't ever liked me at all. She'd do that from time to time. She'd just change her mind about me. It made me feel like shit, but then I'd say to myself, you totally deserve this. She was supposed to fly back to Barcelona at the end of August. I'd always known that. That had been what was supposed to happen when I first met her, but I hadn't thought it was possible that I'd lived to see it happen. Then it happened. Before she left, she gave me a letter. The letter said, wait. She waited two days. I waited three days.
other girls, some girls I didn't deserve, some girls I deserved. One thing, I was always an asshole. When I was going to kill myself, I went to the VA hospital. I waited in the waiting room. There were two other people there, elderly, a man and woman. The man had an oxygen tank and one of those hats that tells you what battleship he was on. The woman, his wife, I imagine, looked like a potato that was about to whistle a tune, a happy tune. When it was my turn, I told the hospital people that I was real close to doing it, but I didn't believe in it, and now I didn't know what to do. They said, hang out here, and they sent me back to the waiting room, except to a different part that was boxed in with plexiglass, and they shut the door, and I sat there for a while, away from the other people. Then a lady came and asked me if I wanted to be an inpatient, and already I knew that'd be bad, so I said I'd just leave. She said she'd make an appointment for me to see a psychiatrist in a few days. I said, all right. That Saturday, the National Guard sent people to my apartment to come get me. I had my mind made up that I was through with the fake soldier bullshit. I followed them down to the armory and told the one guy I'd try from now on because I was on the spot and I had to say some shit like that even though I knew I wasn't going to try and I didn't. After a while, they lost interest, so I was free because I was more trouble than I was worth. When I ran out of money that winter, I had to go get a job. I worked at a restaurant again, six nights a week, and it paid shit. Girls left me alone for a little while. And then it was spring again, and then it was summer again. Spring was like a foot in the grave, summer was a fucking joke. I turned 23, James Lightfoot went to rehab. I moved to Belmar. Belmar was all right till the ceiling got wet and fell in. I called the landlord and said the ceiling had got wet and fallen in. He sent a guy who put in a drop ceiling. When the drop ceiling got wet and fell in, I knew it was time for a change. I quit my job. I left everything. I left the furniture. Actually, I threw it into the yard. I threw it off the porch from the second story. All I took when I moved was the bed and a rug I liked. I was into heroin. I had sold my TV and injected it. I had found a decent enough heroin guy, 300. This was before 300 was a piece of shit. I moved into a one-bedroom above the sandwich shop at Coventry and Mayfield next to the convenience store where they had wine. The sandwiches were excellent. Things were good. It was fall. I liked fall. I was completely fucking broke and the world's economy was in crisis. It looked like maybe the world would stop and then we'd be okay. No more pretending. I went to 80s night for the fuck of it. This is when I met Libby. Chapter 45 It was a lot of those little tea candles everywhere because the electric wasn't on yet, and Libby and I did some lines. We were drinking Gato Negro, the cheapest shit you could get for money, and she was talking softly because she wasn't sure of herself. She said she was wasting her time at community college. But my cousin lives in California. I'm going to move there and live with her. She works for a movie studio in Hollywood. She tells me lots of inside stuff about celebrities, stuff the public doesn't know about, like George Clooney's actually gay, yeah. But he doesn't come out because it'd be bad for business. I'll probably live with my cousin at first. She says she can get me a job. I said I'd miss her. She looked down into her cup. She wore lots of mascara. 
Her mother had died when she was in high school. I never asked how. I said, I don't think it'd be possible for you to be any hotter than you are. You're as hot as girls get. You're as hot as it's possible to be. She said, thank you. And when she was naked, she was on all fours and I spit on her back. She said, did you just spit on me? Yeah. You do whatever you want, don't you? Sometimes. I think it's a good thing. Next night, we went to a Halloween party across town in Tremont. She had brought two friends with her, Gilda and Megan. Megan was the only one wearing a costume. She had dressed up as a Nazi. I'd said I wasn't sure she'd be well-received at the party if she went dressed up like that, but Gilda had said she was Jewish and Megan's costume didn't offend her, so Megan would probably be okay. We did some lines and went to the party. Gilda met Roy there, and Gilda left the party early with Roy. Then a girl named J.L. got mad at Megan's costume. She said her grandparents had been in the camps. Megan took the swastika armband off her sleeve, but she still had the jackboots and the brown shirt on and nothing to change into. So we left. We went back to my apartment, and there was no more coke, and Megan wasn't feeling it. She said, Take me home, Libby. Let's just stay a little while. I want to go home, she said. I want to go home now, Libby. Geez, okay, we'll go. Just give me one second, will you? Libby asked when she could see me again. I said as soon as she possibly could would be best for me. She said tomorrow. I said tomorrow. Libby had angel wings done on her back. On some places on the angel wings were names written in small script. They're the names of people I love, she said. She'd lie on her back and with her head over the side of the bed. She said she liked this. She went, lucky, 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 lucky. She was 19. These girls had grown up with the internet. I came in her face. Libby wiped the cum off her face and licked it off her fingers. And she said, the monkeys are eating carrots and the wabbits are eating bananas. And I was depressed again. I had money on Friday, so I bought some heroin and shot it with Libby and Gilda. Gilda said, oh, my, this is nice. Libby said, yeah, this is really great. Roy came over and shot heroin, too. We all drank Gato Negro. We smoked all the cigarettes. Gilda looked like Tinkerbell when she was wasted. I wanted to fuck Gilda. She spilled half a bottle of Gato Negro on the rug she said, how careless of me. I said, no worries, Gilda, you'll have that. When we ran out of cigarettes, Roy took Gilda home and Libby and I crashed, but we couldn't sleep. So we got up and we went and took a shower. That's how I saw Libby without her makeup on. She looked so young it scared the shit out of me. And I told her I loved her. And she got real happy about it. She said she loved me too. This was the happiest that I would ever see her. And I already knew it would turn out bad because I was a fucking coward and my heart was rotten as shit. Chapter 46 Gilda was fucking Roy. She was also fucking an Israeli guy named Ricky. Ricky wore a leather jacket, but he wasn't shit. Libby told me about Ricky, but I knew him from before and I knew he wasn't shit. <laughs> 
He was one of these ones that everything he says is a lie, and he goes around telling girls he's 27 when he's more like 40. And he wore a leather jacket, and he wasn't shit. One night, Gilda and Roy and Libby and I went out to a bar, and Ricky came around, and it looked like there maybe was going to be some violence. Ricky said to me, Why does your boy keep looking at me like that? He needs to stop doing it. I'll hurt him, bro. I was in the Israeli army. Roy was a fuck, and I knew that. I'd seen him steal tramadols from a border collie with terminal cancer. But we went back a long way, and I was obliged to do whatever was necessary. There was that, plus Ricky was a bitch, and I didn't believe that shit he said about Israel. I said to Ricky, don't take this the wrong way, but I'll beat the fuck out of you. He said, I'm not trying to start any shit with you, bro. I'm just saying that your boy should be more careful. Nobody wants you here. Fuck you, bro, he said. Who the fuck are you? You're a fucking creep, bro. I know you're getting those girls strung out on drugs. You're scum. He had his mind made up that he wasn't going anywhere. Maybe he was the chaperone. Who can know what's in a man's heart? Anyway, the rest of us said fuck it, and we went back to my apartment and we were locked out, so I kicked the door in and then we shot heroin and did stuff like that. It got late and Gilda spilled wine on the rug again. She said, I'm so clumsy. I said, don't worry about it, Gilda, you're all right. But please be careful, I like this rug. Roy said it was the party rug. This was the night I said to Libby I thought we ought to get married, and she agreed that we ought to get married, so we were getting married. We told Gilda and Roy. Gilda said, How lovely, I'll be the flower girl. Later I tried to fuck Libby, but I couldn't get it up because I was on too much drugs. Chapter 47 I had quit my job that past summer. The job had paid $8 an hour. It had cost me almost that much in parking tickets. It was a lot of fucks who worked there anyway. Actually, everyone who worked there was a fuck, except Joe. Joe worked there, and he was all right. The rest of them were shit. They'd tell on you to the boss. They didn't do drugs. I think a lot of them were virgins. No one but Joe and I had ever had anything to do with murders or anything like that. The world meant something else to them than it did to me. After he got back, Joe had had problems for a while, but he was getting better. He had stopped jumping out of moving cars every time he had a fight with his girlfriend when he was drunk and they were in a car. So that was progress. Soon, he would be a decent human being again. We wouldn't be friends much longer. I was back in school because I needed the money for drugs. Poetry class was twice a week, and I was usually in bad shape if I made it at all. The lady who taught the class was named Dr. Archer. She acted bitter as fuck for a woman as young as she was, seeing as it wasn't like she was ugly or anything. She was real serious about poetry, too. She came from England. The class was doing Ode on a Grecian Urn. Dr. Archer was asking us about the end. I was pretty wasted on some fucking skags, so I missed most of what she was saying, but I caught the last part. Beauty is truth, she said. Truth, beauty, that is all ye know on earth, and all ye need to know. What do you think Keats meant? No one tried to answer. I thought, fuck it, I'll give it a shot. The line spoke to me, spoke to my heart, so how could it be that I should misunderstand it? I raised my hand. Archer kept looking for someone else to call on, 
and there was no one else. At last, she had to say, You. I don't know, I said. Maybe he's saying that all things that are true are beautiful, you know, so beauty is the only thing worth living for. All she said was, no. But the way she said it was as if I'd taken a dump on the floor and ruined the whole poetry class, which I thought was a bit over mean on her part. And her meanness made me wonder why this contempt? Why should this lady despise me? And then I knew the answer. There were two jackals fucking inside of her. Libby and Gilda had tried living together. They had signed a lease on an apartment some months back. I think I went over there twice. The only furniture aside from their beds was an inflatable sofa, and they had a little TV set with a DVD player built into the bottom of it, and they had maybe a hundred plastic martini glasses. I didn't like going to their apartment, too many dreams there that would never come true. They ended up breaking the lease, some big fight or whatever, it doesn't matter, but they turned on each other. Libby told me how Gilda kept fucking around on Roy with that bitch Ricky. Libby thought Ricky was a creeper. She'd seen Ricky make out with a 17-year-old girl. At the same time, Gilda was telling me Libby was a borderline retard and completely psycho and a slut who'd fuck more or less anybody and pretty much did. Don't you see it, she said. You have to. I know you do. And it turned out Roy had been talking shit. Libby said, he talks shit about you. I said, that was okay. It doesn't bother you? Why would it bother me? Nine times out of ten, you have a friend, he's going to talk shit about you. That's just the cost of doing business. Does he know Gilda hooks up with other guys? I imagine he presupposed it. Does he cheat on her? What do you think? Why, did he tell you something? No. And you don't care. That's right. And you don't care what he says about you. No, I don't. Because you don't give a fuck. Because I don't give a fuck. Libby and I went out on Sunday night. 80s night. Gilda went too. Roy didn't go because he said he was poor. Libby and Gilda danced together. I drank well vodka at the bar. Kamchatka. I was shit at dancing. The night ended. We went up the stairs and out onto the sidewalk. Libby and Gilda were excited. Two guys humped us while we were dancing. We were dancing by ourselves and these two guys came up from behind and smushed us between them and humped us. Look, there they are. Libby pointed at two bros who were about to turn the corner. They were about to get away. I sensed Libby's expectation that I would do something. And I wasn't thrilled about it, but then I figured the bros weren't dangerous, and there were two of them and one of me, so she couldn't really expect I'd do much more than catch up with them and talk some shit and leave it at that. Which I about did till I got carried away. I said, how much money you got on you? What? I said, give me all your fucking money. They raised an alarm. It turned out these bros weren't alone. More bros appeared. And now there were six bros, and it looked like I was about to get the fuck beaten out of me. I was lucky that two friends of Libby's happened to be out there, two black guys, gay ones. Two gay black guys in fur coats and diamond earrings, one of them a giant. They saved me. The bros didn't do shit. The bros were scared of the two gay black guys. Libby took my hand. I want you to meet my friends, she said. The one, the giant, had to be six foot seven, and he was built like a fucking bull. I thanked him. He said, so this is your boy, Libby. He's cute. 
She said, yeah. Then a bro I hadn't seen yet came jumping up the street. You better pop off, son. You better pop off. Pop off, son. You better pop off. And some more bros came and they took him away while he kept on. Pop off. Pop off. You better pop off. Pop off. Pop off. Pop off, son. He faded out. The giant said, tell me, Libby, when are you two getting married? She said, we're not sure yet. He said to me, if you ever hurt Libby, I'll kill you. When I told Libby I wasn't really going to marry her, she got upset. Why are you doing this to me? She said, I love you. I said, I'm sorry, but it isn't what you think. All this I love you and I want to marry you shit, it's fucking bullshit. I'm sorry, but it's true. I know I said that shit, but there's no way I can really mean it, not in real life. That's not true. But really, that is the truth, and I'm sorry. Please, believe me, I wish things were different, but they're not. It's just that it's no good, and I may as well tell you now, right? It'd just be worse later, you know? What are you saying? I don't know what I'm saying, but it's how I fucking feel. I wouldn't do some shit like this to you for the fuck of it. I'm not trying to be a dick. I say I love you, right? I'd like it to be true, but it's fucking stupid, and I should have known better than to do that. Are you saying you don't want to be with me? No, I do. That's not the problem. The problem is just that I know it's no good and I don't believe in this shit. You don't trust me? Honestly? No, not especially, but what do you mean? What have I ever done? It's not anything you did, so don't worry, really. It's okay. But a motherfucker would have to be crazy to trust a girl this day and age. Nothing personal. Did somebody tell you something about me? Was it Gilda? She's lying. Nobody said anything. Fuck you. Ah, shit. Why the fuck are you mad at me? I'm trying to be fucking honest with you. You said you loved me. You said we were going to get married. Now you're saying you don't love me and we're not getting married, and I'm not supposed to be mad at you? I do love you. Fuck. I mean, I like you a lot. So much. I like you so much. You're really great. You know that. You're incredibly hot, and you're much too nice to me, but I can't do this. Look around you. I've lived in this fucking apartment almost two months now, and the lights aren't even turned on yet. Doesn't that tell you something? 90% of the time, I'm too high to fuck you, and I know you like dick, and I'm too high, so that's lame. I understand why you fuck other guys. I don't fuck other guys. Yes, you do. And you don't need to lie about it. Who am I that you should need to justify yourself to me? You fuck other guys, and you have my blessing. You like dick, and there's nothing wrong with that. You're supposed to like dick, and I don't doubt for a second that one of those pieces of shit is a better match for you than I am. You ought to marry that one. But I want to be with you. How can you say that? You don't really know anything about me. Yes, I do. What's my last name? You see? That's not fair. Listen. I'd ruin your life. This is your lucky break. Trust me, you'll get over it. Are you breaking up with me? I don't know. Gilda had been out in the living room the whole time, and Libby and I were feeling dumb on account of Gilda's having heard us say a lot of crazy shit. And Gilda was bored, so we decided we would all feel much better if we did some heroin. I called 300. It was three in the morning, but 300 picked up, and I said I was sorry about calling so late. He said it was okay because he was always awake and I could come through. 
Libby and Gilda wanted to come along, so we all drove over to Buckeye and met 300 on one of the side streets over that way. He got in the front seat and looked back and said, Good evening, ladies. 300 invariably smelled like shit, and he was a fat fuck, and he had breath like he ate shit for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I said, 300, this is Libby and Gilda. Libby, Gilda, this is 300. Hi, 300. We really like the heroin. On the way back, Libby asked me if 300 was his real name. I said it probably wasn't. Gilda said he smelled like a zoo. Ten minutes later, we were out of heroin, but we were all high as fuck, and Gilda flipped an ashtray over on the rug and said, Darn. I said, Gilda, you're a fucking bitch. Libby asked if we could call 300 again. I said we didn't have any money. She said, Can we maybe get some and pay him back later? I said I didn't think he'd go for that. It was real late. Chapter 48 December. Libby had been on me to go out to Chardon and meet her dad. I called her on the way because I got lost. I said, I'm lost and I can't see a fucking thing. It's fucking dark out here. She stayed on the phone and talked me all the way there, step by step. The house wasn't big. Okay, I'm here. Ooh-wee, I'm so excited. Her dad was in the living room. He said his name was Mark. I said hello to Mark. He was tall and very thin, soft-spoken, depressed, effeminate. Another man and a woman were on the sofa. I wasn't introduced, so I just waved to them. They didn't wave back. The man had a silver crew cut. He looked like a sheriff's deputy. The woman looked like hell. Both of them were wearing turtlenecks, so was Mark, but what scared me the most was that they were all drinking pop. Libby's kid brother came running down the stairs. He was sixteen and half-naked. He was wearing silk boxers and a Santa hat, a plastic necklace that lit up. He said, Come here, big boy. He wrapped his arms around me and started dry-humping me really hard. He wouldn't let go. He was stronger than I was. I got the impression that he did lots of sit-ups. He kept humping me. I didn't know what to do. Then Libby took my hand. Come with me, she said. I want to show you this. She led me into a dining room where there were stacks of old magazines on the table and on the floor and against the wall was a china cabinet holding a number of framed photographs. This is my mom, she said. She picked up one of the photographs and kissed it and handed it to me. Libby looked like her mother. The same eyes, the same mouth, the same smile. I handed the photograph back to her. She's beautiful. Thank you. You look like her. Thanks. She put the photograph back in its place, and she showed me another. That's me with my older brothers. It was her and five guys with shaved heads. Any one of them looked like he could beat the fuck out of me. I heard there was a party some days later. I didn't go. I hadn't been invited, but I wouldn't have gone anyway. It was Ricky's party. Roy went. I didn't wonder at that. Roy dropped by so he could meet this guy Pills and Coke at my apartment. It was a convenience thing since Pills and Coke was paying me rent to keep a safe in my kitchen. Roy was wearing a sweater with a reindeer on the front. He looked like a total asshole and I was ashamed of him. He said, you're just chilling by yourself? I said I was. He said, that's cool. 
How's things with you and Libby? Fine. That Libby's a good girl. Yeah. I see why you like her so much. She's got that whole painted whore thing going for her. Say, man, you wouldn't happen to have any clean rigs around here, would you? I said no, but I had some slightly used ones and some bleach. He considered it and said it would have to do. I went and cleaned out a couple rigs. Pills and coke came up and Roy bought an 80 milligram oxy off him. If you didn't know any better, you'd have thought pills and coke was Biff from Back to the Future, but he wasn't. He was pills and coke, and it was almost 2009, and pills and coke wasn't old enough to have been in Back to the Future. I had decided that I'd better get an 80 as well, and I asked pills and coke to take it out of what he owed me in safe rent. He said I'd already run through all that, so I asked him to spot me one for a day or two. He said okay. Pills and coke left, and Roy and I got to shooting our pills. Roy shot half his 80, and I shot the entirety of mine. Roy said, I wish I could afford to shoot a whole 80 like that. I said, work hard and save your money, and you just might. Really? He said, so that's how you do it? Something like that. Why aren't you at the party? He said. Libby's there. Chapter 49 Zoe was back. I said, Zoe, what are you doing here? Holiday, she said, visiting friends. Zoe, you live in Barcelona. How long have you been in America? A month. Why didn't you tell me you were coming? You don't check your email. Please come over. Zoe had called. She wanted to see me, and I was dying in a good way about getting to see her. She was fucking gorgeous and so cool. I'd fucked her before. Maybe I could fuck her again. Maybe that would save me. One thing, though, when I'd fucked her before, I'd fucked her all wrong. I'd been trying to make a big deal out of how much it meant to me to fuck her, and I'd fucked her pretty lame. I hadn't understood that she wasn't trying to think about what this or that meant, and she wasn't trying to be all sad about everything. Fucking the sad is like fucking the dead. It's not something healthy people want to do. And I'd been on coke, and I'd been emotional. That's usually how I'd ruin things. And I think this is all very tragic. Anyway, Zoe came over. I said, Zoe, I'm so glad you're back. She said, yeah, it's cool. Libby called. I didn't take her call. She called again. I ignored it. Then Libby was downstairs trying to get in. Then she was yelling up at the window, yelling like the world's most beautiful psycho. Zoe said, is she your girlfriend? No. I feel bad for her. I think I should go. Don't go. She'll give up. She'll get tired of it. Just give it a minute. She fucks lots of people. She must think I'm a witch. It's nothing. We'll just ignore her. It'll be fine. And I'd thought still it'd be all right, but then I ran into some bad luck. I'd taken a bar and drank a gato negro. I knew better than to do some shit like this. I'd always been a lightweight when it came to the benzodiazepines. But I was broke and the bars were the only drugs I had and Zoe had wanted to do drugs and I hadn't wanted to disappoint her. And I don't believe in giving anyone anything I wouldn't take myself, so I took a bar. That's why I blacked out. Such was life. I didn't understand it. I came to on the floor and Zoe was gone. Beautiful Zoe. And there was Libby. Beautiful Libby. She kicked me in the side. What is wrong with you? Where did Zoe go? She left. 
You've ruined everything. What did I ruin? You don't fucking care. Leave me alone. I'm goddamn fucking miserable. Why are you so miserable? You always say you're so miserable. What do you have to be miserable about? You're a brat. Is your mother dead? You don't even have to work. What are you telling me about work for? You've never even had a job. That's not true. Babysitting doesn't count. Shut up. Well, it fucking doesn't. Why are you always so mean to me? I'm not mean to you. Now, please get the fuck out of here. I love you. You know that's bullshit. She kicked me again. I said, shit, how the fuck is this cool? I'm sorry. She helped me up off the floor. She took me to bed. And try as I might, I couldn't fuck. I said, hey, Libby. What? I think the reason I'm so fucking miserable is I'm in the wrong place by mistake. Probably the wrong time, too. I don't know. It's like I have nothing in common with this shit. A hundred years ago, you could just buy some heroin at the fucking store and people leave you the fuck alone, but it doesn't work like that anymore. They want you to agree with them now. Why do you whine so much all the time? I wish I could act like normal motherfuckers, you know, but when I try and fake it, they can tell and they fucking judge me. How do they always know I'm against them? Shit. Fuck them, but it's discouraging. This is boring. I want you to kill me. Boring. I'm serious. You're being stupid. No fucking shit I'm being stupid, but I'm serious. I'm not going to kill you. God damn it, Libby. I'm asking you to do something for me. Can you please just shut the fuck up and do it? This is retarded. Come on. No. Please. No. You say you love me, don't you? If you really mean that, then you'll do it. No. Come on. Please. Right now? Yeah, right now. Why not? Okay. She straddled my stomach. Her crotch was cool and wet. She put her hands on my throat and leaned into it. She was trying to crush my trachea, I guess. It would have been better had she put the pressure on my carotid arteries. Then I'd have been out in a few seconds and she could have done what needed to be done, but the trachea hurt too much, especially slow like she was doing it and there was the question of whether or not she could get it crushed all the way. I was surprised that she was really doing it, but I had no choice but to go along with it because it had been my idea. So I just lay there. Her lip was shaky. We stared into one another's eyes. I couldn't breathe. Maybe she did love me. Maybe she was the best thing that ever happened to me. But I had to breathe. I grabbed her hips and threw her over my head. It took her farther than I'd have thought, and she went headfirst into the radiator. I got up, and she was laid out on the floor, a look of surprise. She said, What did you do that for? You told me to kill you. I said, It was a test, and you failed. Chapter 50 The rest of the winter was graceless. I dated Megan. She didn't pay for a bag of coke I'd got her, so it turned into a date, and suddenly we were dating, and I'd met her sister and her mother. Megan's mother looked like a bowler. Megan's sister said she'd kill me if I ever hurt Megan. I knew I had to get out. I got to panicking. I tried about everything I could think of to get Megan to be the one to break up with me so as to spare her feelings. I acted batshit crazy. She liked it. 
I ignored her phone calls for days. She kept calling. I stopped paying for things. She paid for everything. I stuffed her socks in her mouth. She had an orgasm. Nothing worked. So I had to tell Megan it was a mistake. This happened at her place. I had come over and gone right into it, hoping it'd be quick and painless, but Megan started crying. Her chihuahua, Tony, was there. He saw everything. He was wearing his little Dracula cape, and Megan was on the sofa. You'd have thought somebody had died. She wanted me to feel shitty about not liking her more. I thought it was selfish. I said she was really overdoing it because my heart had already been murdered, and so had everybody else's that I knew of, so what was her excuse? We hadn't been seeing each other a month yet. This wasn't a big deal. But Megan wouldn't stop with her bullshit. She was doing a fuckload of crying, and Tony climbed up onto her shoulders and tried to lap up her tears, and Megan said, Tony, go away! And she threw Tony on the rug, and Tony climbed back up and tried lapping up her tears again. Tony, I'm serious! She threw Tony on the rug again. I said I was sure she was a fake because it was impossible that she could be so upset about this. I said girls did cold-blooded shit to me all the time and no one ever gave a fuck about that. Why wasn't it a big deal when a guy got shit on? I'd been shit on a thousand times and it was the 21st century and she was being rude. Megan's sister didn't kill me. No one has yet. I had to take some kind of opiate or I couldn't go to school. I'd get panic attacks. It was all the people that did it to me. Either people terrified me or they made me feel like I was a fucking bastard in comparison. There was no in-between. When I had no choice, I'd try and go to school without dope, and I might lose my nerve in the parking lot and stay there in the car and smoke cigarettes and listen to the radio, maybe fall asleep. Then I'd go home. But this was stupid. I managed to piss Joe off. He dropped in to see me on St. Patrick's Day. He wanted to maybe go and drink something, and he caught me with my eyes cracked out of my head, so he got to making an intervention of it. He said, maybe you should chill out on this stuff. I said drug use was the only thing I didn't have a problem with. He said, I wish you could hear how fucking crazy you sound when you talk. Why are you bothering me with this? You're my friend, man. I have to tell you if you're fucking up your life. I've kind of had it with friends. All right. Good luck, then. Yeah, you too. That night I broke into the Coke safe and shot about eight grams, all told, probably. The night stilled. I began to hallucinate. A car was parked somewhere beyond the light. It was watching me, and my eye trembled. I heard a radio. Men were on the stairs. There was a shadow in the hall. Somebody was kicking my door in. I flushed an ounce of coke down the toilet. I threw a shoebox full of used syringes out the kitchen window. A shoebox landed on the roof of the convenience store next door and the syringes scattered all over the roof. I surrendered to a phantom SWAT team. I said, let's do this nice and peaceful. I opened the door. No one was there. The sun was rising and the cars were coming out when I climbed up to the roof of the convenience store with a broom and gathered up the syringes. I was dressed up like I worked. I tried to act like I belonged up there. Chapter 51 I picked Emily up at the Greyhound station. She was on her way to Elba. 
She had been living with her dad down in Florida, and she'd started shooting dope there. I'd had no idea. It was a three-hour layover. Emily said she wanted to get high. I took her with me to meet up with 300, and she paid for the heroin. We went to Walgreens for rigs. I said to her, Can you go in and get the rigs? You look more respectable than I do. And I've kind of burned this place up. She said, Okay. She went in and came out with rigs for us. She was an angel. We didn't shoot up till we were back in my apartment. I cleaned some spoons off real good. We had saline wound wash from Walgreens. I'd given her extra money for it. It was a special day. She shot up like she knew what she was doing. When it hit her, she said, Fuck. And it hit me, and I was right as rain. If you know, then you know what I mean. If you don't, then don't ever find out. I kissed Emily. She kissed me back. I said, I've been a real fucking bastard since you left. I'm no good. She said, I've missed you too. She'd been fucking with some guy down in Florida. She shot dope with him. She was working at her dad's dental practice. She was the receptionist. She said she'd been bored as shit, but she met this guy and he was all right and he got her shooting dope. And there was a time she'd shot too much heroin. Not all at once, but over the course of an hour or two. Lover was there. This was at his place. She couldn't breathe too good. She'd been worried she was going to die. She wrote it out, though. Lover had kept an eye on her. He said I'd turned blue, she said. God damn, that's terrible. That scares the shit out of me. And I'd get tore up thinking about it before long, after I'd dropped her off at the station. I'd be thinking about this guy and him watching her turn all blue and what else watching her gasp for air. I pictured her lying on the floor in some piece of shit tract house down in Florida, wall-to-wall -wall carpet and all that godlessness. I still loved her. She wouldn't fuck me, though. She said I had to get an HIV test before she came back, and I said, all right, and she said she'd be back. The free clinic did the HIV test with fake names. The name I got was Dion Valentine. Dion Valentine? Dion Valentine. Dion Valentine? The lady asked how many partners I'd had since the last time I was tested. Does it count if I tried but I couldn't? Was there genital-to-genital -genital contact? Then yes. Is that a lot? No, not really. Have you used intravenous drugs? Have you had sex with any intravenous drug users? Have you shared needles with anyone? Part 5 The Great Dope Fiend Romance Chapter 52 there was nothing better than to be young and on heroin. Emily and I were living together. The days were bright. You didn't worry about jobs because there weren't any. But you could go to school so you could get FAFSA 
So you could get student loans and Pell Grants, and if you were getting GI Bill, that'd cover your tuition. So you didn't need your FAFSA for school, and you could go and buy dope with it instead, which was all you really wanted. You could kill yourself real slow and feel like a million dollars. You could grow high-class weed in your basement and pay the rent like that. Of course, the future looked bad. You went into debt, you got sick all the time, you couldn't shit, everyone you met was a fucker, your new friends would eat the eyes out of your head for a spoon or twenty dollars, your old friends stayed away. But you could do more heroin, and that would usually serve to settle you down when you were going on twenty-five, back when you could still fake it. And there was nothing better than to be young and on heroin. Chapter 53 Around ten at night, Ari had called back. This was where Ari had said to go. I got off the freeway at Fleet Avenue and made a few turns and parked in the street. The house smelled like cat piss. Ari looked like Justin Bieber. He said Gary was on his way. This wasn't Ari's house. This was Gary's house. I didn't know Gary. I knew Ari. Ari was from Shaker. Really, I didn't know Ari either. He used to go to 80s night. I was just hoping he could get me some heroin. I was in need of a dope boy. I was getting oxys pretty cheap, about 50 cents per milligram, and those were fine, but what I wanted was the real thing. And this was where I was. Ari and I were waiting in the living room. A retarded woman was watching TV. The living room carpet was red. The retarded woman had a blonde mullet that went halfway down her back. Ari called her Shelly. Shelly was watching CSI. She didn't want to change the channel. She had a husky voice, and her consonants were kind of fucked, but you could understand what she said, and you could hear the desperation in it. Shelly was desperately retarded. Gary showed up with the heroin. I was surprised because Gary had achondroplasia. Ari hadn't told me Gary had achondroplasia. Ari hated me. Gary took the heroin out of a little metal box with a magnet on it. He said, check this out. There wasn't a lot of heroin, just two grams. Gary said, this shit's supposed to be fire. That's what my dude told me. I gave Gary $140 for a gram. The price was real shitty. I only wanted to pay 100 But Gary had said what he said, and I'd allow for quality. We shot up around the kitchen sink, Gary, Ari, and I. The kitchen was trashed. Shelly watched us shoot up. You thought I can have them, Gary? I'll get you in a second, he said. You thought I can have them? Would you shut up, you retarded fucking bitch? The heroin was all right, not worth the money, but we all felt it. I had .7 grams left. I'd take that home. Gary said, you like Delauded? I said I'd take all the Delauded I could get. He said, cool. You said I can have them, Gary. Go watch TV. Gary sold me ten four-milligram Delauded's at seven dollars each, and I was glad, and I got the fuck out of there. The night was very cold, and the cold was good. The cold was familiar. I called Emily, and I drove home. Emily was in the kitchen. She said, Happy Valentine's Day. I wouldn't ever get tired of coming home to her. We shot dope and watched late night TV. 
Maybe we should have fucked on account of it was Valentine's Day and all, but we didn't give a fuck about Valentine's Day. We only gave a fuck about one thing. So, that's how we were together. Chapter 54 When Ari's folks kicked him out, he came to live down Gary's way, and Gary put him up in an abandoned house, and it was fucking freezing. But Gary had cracked the gas line so the stove would run. A sofa was next to the stove. All four burners on the stove were going. From the waist up, the kitchen was an inferno, but if you sat down too long, you could have frozen to death. We were waiting on Gary. I gave Ari cigarettes. Ari was getting sick. He was feeling bad. This was Ari in poverty. Ari's poverty was based on his belief that he shouldn't ever have to pay for anything or do anything to make himself useful to anyone. Now he was getting sick and he was wearing his sleeping bag like a cape and things weren't going especially well for him. I wasn't doing much better. Emily and I had each shot a 20 milligram of oxy earlier in the morning, but that'd only keep us well for a few hours. A 20 could take you there if you had no real habit, but it counted for next to nothing when you were as accustomed to things as Emily and I were. That was how dope had worked on us. It had got so we were wasting our time if we weren't putting at least $45 in our veins, and even then it was just a little moment till we were sick all over again. So, yeah... Emily was over at school, and soon she'd be fucked, and she was counting on me to come through for her. I wasn't having any luck yet, but I had a couple irons in the fire. This shit with Gary, plus I was waiting to hear back from Big about some oxys. I'd skipped class. I always skipped class to go look for dope. It was more important that Emily go to class since she was the smart one. She was a grad assistant, and it would have looked worse if she missed. People would have said, where's the grad assistant? Gary showed up. He didn't have any dope. He'd said he did, but he didn't. He had lied. Gary was a real full of shit motherfucker, and I'd already known that. Gary had a $20 crack rock. Ari said, what about the dope? Gary said, I'm still waiting on old boy to call me back. Ari's nose was runny. He was making sad faces. I lit a cigarette. Gary said, you got any glass? I had a bowl in the car, but that wasn't what he meant. Fuck, he said. If I could just get a Brillo pad, we'd be all right. I said I'd take him to the store. We had some time to kill, and we'd do just as well to smoke some crack while we waited. So we drove to the store. Gary said if I spotted him the money for the Brillo pad, he'd let me and Ari smoke the crack rock with him. I spotted him the money. Gary got out and went into the store. He took forever. He came back. He had bought a box of Brillo pads and a tall boy of Mickey's. I said nothing about the Mickey's. Gary tore off a piece of Brillo pad and put it in the bowl, and he had the crack rock in there, too. He took a big rip of crack smoke. Then he exploded. Spit went everywhere. Gary opened the door and puked so bad he fell out of the car. He had got some puke on his clothes. The puke smelled like Big Mac sauce. It was my turn to smoke some crack, but there was no more crack left to smoke. Gary had got the whole rock, one hit. Ari's phone rang, Gary picked it up, it was old boy. We were good. Twenty minutes later, we were back at the abandoned house, shooting up in the inferno. The heroin was super stepped on. I said, no offense, Gary, but this shit is kind of some garbage. 
Gary said, I don't normally go through that guy. I only called him because you said you needed something quick. But my other dude, he told me he's got some fire. I just won't be able to get up with him till later. We agreed we would do that. I was sure Gary was fucked, but I'd give him another try. In the meantime, I had to run. I texted Emily when I was on the freeway. I got downtown and made a left off of Chester and waited for her to come down. We drove around to the parking lot. How is it? She asked. It's so-so. As long as it gets me well, man. It will. It isn't that bad. It's just the dope's expensive for what it is, and Gary and Ari depressed the shit out of me. Hmm. What do you think? I do feel better. How's your day been? Totally fucked. The writing lab's a fucking joke. I have this one student. He's on the basketball team. He doesn't do anything. He expects me to write his assignments for him. I'm pretty sure he's illiterate. Well, the basketball coach probably promised him that you'd do his homework for him. That was probably their understanding. Fuck their understanding. Yes, I know. Ugh. I don't want to go back up there. Then don't. Sure, she said. That's a great idea. Maybe I can join the fucking circus. Just saying. My phone buzzed. I had a text. It was from Big. He said he was about to be on the east side if I wanted to meet up with him. I called him. Everything was good. I said to Emily, Big's gonna meet me at Rock and Roll McDonald's. Why there? It'll be all right. How many are you gonna get? 